In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory to thee, O God. Glory to thee, heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present, and fillest all things, O treasure of every good and bestower of life. Come and dwell us, and cleanse us of every stain, and save our souls, O good one. For the last three or four months, with God's help, we have been listening to quite a lot about deceptions. Quite a few uh, talks, except for the last one, reading from the lives of saints, and we discovered there of how easy it is for someone to fall into demonic deception or even uh, what we call the other deceptions, the simpler ones, but still serious. And last month, we examined the miracles which Christ did and how the Pharisees, the Jews in those times, distorted them. Today, what I wanted to do is look at true miracles which Christ did, because we've done enough on the demonic deceptions, which a lot of people said that they benefited, but also last month's talk, I had a lot of feedback from people who said that they really liked the analysis of the parts of the New Testament, the Bible and the Old Testament, but the the New Testament. And I think we should uh, continue on with that. And what we're going to try to get to today is the difference between when someone comes to the faith, when someone comes to, the, to, to faith in Christ, to the church through miracles, by seeing miracles, and those who didn't see miracles but who came to the church just by listening to the word of God. The question is, which one is better? Which one is more powerful? Which one has a deeper effect on the person and I asked that to some people I asked which one do you think so I'm going to ask the question to you people here today and those who will listen to the talk later on on the CD they can answer themselves and then we'll see how we go so who believes that the more powerful the the one that has a stronger effect on a person is those who see miracles, who saw Christ's miracles, and from that believed. So hands up those who believe that's stronger. Okay, and who believes that the more powerful would be the ones who just heard the word of God? Would that be the more powerful? So looks like it's half-half. Okay, well, let's look at the, um, the miracles. Christ did great miracles. The dead were resurrected. The incurably sick were cured. Lepers were cleansed. Later on, we're going to go through that and see what is leprosy. The blind from birth could see. They were healed. The dumb, those who couldn't speak, could speak. 
Demons were expelled from the possessed. There was a lot of pe people in those times that were possessed, just like now. Food was multiplied immediately for the needy, as we read last time, the multiplication of the five loaves. The waves of the sea and the wind were calmed at a command and saved those who were in danger of perishing from the storm. We also think read that last time. The nets of the fishermen who laboured in vain all night and caught no fish, as soon as Christ spoke, suddenly their nets became filled with fish. Christ also changed water into wine. Christ also walked on water. They're just some of the miracles that Christ did. Many witnessed these miracles, including those who were hostile towards him, because not everyone was favourable towards Christ. There were those who were hostile for obvious reasons, some because of jealousy. They didn't like the fact that people were going to him and not going to them. Uh, others witnessed miracles who were inattentive. That means that they were like, like dead. They kind of saw him but weren't moved. Uh, and we saw last week that some of those even said, oh, we want to see a sign from heaven. We, we read all that. And also those who came to him who wanted something, either food or healing. The miracles that Christ did were undeniable, meaning that there was no way that they can be said that that was not a true miracle. And that's going to be of something that we're going to see today. The miracles from God, the true miracles, are without doubt. They're obvious, you can see them, but the, but the miracles which uh, the um, demonic people do or whatever else, they are always, as we said, illusions and tricks and things like that, and you're not even sure what's going on. The most spiteful enemies of Christ did not deny them, as we read last month, but they only tried to say, oh, he did it with the power of the devil and other stupidities that they said. They just gave a blasphemous interpretation and which came from their spiritual blindness, which they unfortunately willfully were in that spiritual blindness. We can't say, oh, the poor things didn't know. If they were in spiritual blindness, they were there because they put themselves into spiritual blindness because of their pride. And if we're in spiritual blindness, we're there because we willfully stay in that blindness. And St. Nikolai Velimirovich, great Orthodox father, Serbian saint, he's called the Serbian Chrysostom, just like we have St. John Chrysostom. Chrysostom's a Greek word, Chrysostoma, which means gold mouth. Well, St. Nikolai's called the Serbian Chrysostom, because like St. John Chrysostom taught the people, that's how St. Nikolai taught the people. He lived, uh, he was a bishop, and he died, I think, in the 50s? 57. 57, thank you. And then we have also the Russian Chrysostom, which they say was St. Tikhon of Zadonsk, who also taught people how to live Christian lives. So... One thing that we're going to um, notice today is that the miracles that Christ did, even if he resurrected someone from the dead, if he healed someone, later on those people still going to die. The ones who got sick will get sick later on or they'll die as well. So it's like, okay, the miracles that Christ did had a purpose and the purpose was that he did them out of love, but there must be something else behind them because just to make someone rise from the dead and then later on they're going to die, 
doesn't seem to have much value, or doesn't seem to have much value, or if someone is sick and then, and then they get healed and then later on they die anyway. So there must be something deeper behind this. And let's have a look what is the purpose of Christ's miracles. God gave gifts to mankind, as we said. He gave food. He did all these great miracles of healing the sick and healing the blind and things like that. However, that's not the main reason that God became man. The main reason is not just to give those gifts, those gifts he gave, which we're going to look at that more later, but the real purpose of, of Christ coming, the second person of the Holy Trinity, becoming man through the mother of God. What was the purpose of that? To give us three things. One, healing from sin, because no one could heal sin except for God. And that healing comes through forgiveness. The second thing was to give what's called spiritual resurrection, which means spiritual rebirth, when a person becomes completely reborn, no longer the same person, but changes and becomes a God-fearing person. And the third thing is salvation, blessed eternal life. That is the purpose of God becoming man. The problem is that men, as today, in those times, people were dead spiritually. And they could not gain access to those gifts. They didn't understand spiritual death. They didn't understand sin properly. They didn't understand the life after. They didn't understand hell. They were spiritually insensitive. They had fallen into the darkness, misery and hopelessness of what we said last time, which is carnal-mindedness. A carnal-minded person is a person who thinks, feels, etc., unspiritually, or wrong. We went through a whole list. I'm not gonna, I don't want to go through them again. In other words, people's hearts were darkened and hardened and people's minds were blinded. So when a person's heart is hard, when a person's heart is darkened, when their minds are blinded, they cannot penetrate into the spiritual life. They cannot gain access to these gifts. So the gifts are there that God wants to give, but people can't gain access to it because of their spiritual condition. Because of the spiritual sick condition of people, it was necessary for God, out of his love, to use man's physical senses. In other words, God used their eyes, their ears, touch, taste, so that he can somehow bring them into the spiritual life, to bring them to have true knowledge of him, true knowledge of God. Because, as I said before, the carnal-minded could not sense their illnesses. They could not sense the spiritual illness. As I said before, they couldn't um, sense eternal death. But one thing that people do sense 
these bodily illnesses. That one they, they know. When they're sick, they know it. When they're even mentally sick, they know it. When they're depressed, they know it. And people are very much affected by these sicknesses and they're very much concerned by them. So let's have a look. Here it says, um, he sh- the St. Ignatius branch says, he showed his miracles openly to the carnal-minded, to the spiritually dead, through their physical senses, sight, hearing, touch, smell, taste. It must be remembered that Christ's main purpose of coming to earth was the salvation of mankind. So now let's look at the first example, the first um, miracle. I'm going to go through five. And from these five miracles, with the Holy Fathers helping us to, to interpret them, because when we read the Bible, we don't just read them. We don't just read the Bible and try to work it out ourselves, like the Protestants do, but we read the Bible in humility with the help of the Holy Fathers of the Church who were enlightened. So let's look at the first um, uh, example, is the healing of the paralytic. I'm going to read a little bit and then give an explanation, read a bit of an explanation. So in the, from this Bible reading it says, And again he entered Kapunaum after some days, in other words Christ, and, and it was heard that he was in the house. And straight away many were gathered together so there was no room to receive them, not even near the door. So we have to um, understand that Christ was in a house. He was visiting a house and people heard about it and they all began to run towards the house trying to get in and it became so packed out that people no longer could come in, not even to look through the door. When Jesus had entered the house, the explanation says, the people heard that he was inside and all came running, hoping that it would be easy to meet him there. Just like today, if someone hears, like, oh, there's a holy person that's come and it's very hard to get to meet him. When you go to church, there's just so many people and then people say, oh, I heard he's going to be at such and such a person's house. Maybe we'll get a better chance to speak to him. Maybe we'll get a better chance to, for him to do a prayer for us. So people run to, that, to somewhere where they think they're going to have access. The same thing in those days. It was very hard because there were so many people flocking to Christ to speak to him, to uh, just even see him, that when the people heard that day, oh, he's in the house, they all ran there. But at the end, there was too many people there as well. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not hear him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And another gospel it says, Son, take heart, your sins are forgiven. So, let's see how the Holy Father, see, we read that. It seems pretty simple. We say that uh, four people came bringing on a, on, a, on a bed a paralyzed man. They couldn't get close. They couldn't even hear Christ. That's how many people were there. So they went up on the roof, opened the roof, and let down the person on the bed right in the middle where Christ was in the house. And as soon as Christ saw their faith, whose faith, we'll see in a minute, was it the faith of the man, was it the, faith, the, the paralytic, was it the faith of the four who brought him? And then he said, your uh, son, your, your sins are forgiven. 
And it's interesting that he said the word son because sometimes he might say young man or he might say other words. But this time he said son. We'll examine that as well. So let's look at the explanation. It says that Christ said this because he saw the faith of those who carried him. The faith of those men was so great that they even made an opening in the roof and let down the paralytic. And in another explanation it said that this paralytic must have been extremely sick for there to be need of four to carry him so that it can balance him and not cause him any pain. So this person was a paralytic but an extremely sick person in pain. So that's why there was four. And the fathers say that the four people who brought him had great faith and Christ was referring to their faith but also he must have been referring to the faith of the paralytic because he said son and then he gave and then he said your sins are forgiven for him to do that it meant that he had faith because when he resurrected the young son of the widow who was dead he never had faith because he's dead so he said young man rise but for here he says son which means he had faith so he had faith and the four men had faith. And their faith was such that they opened up the roof and let down the men. But he also saw the faith of the paralytic, as I said, for the paralytic would not have agreed to be carried if he himself had not believed that he would be healed. Now, this is, this is very interesting. Many times the Lord healed the unbelieving sick on account of the faith of those who brought them. Similarly, he often healed the one brought to him because of that man's faith, despite the unbelief of those who brought him. So we have all these scenarios. In this scenario, the people who brought the paralytic and the paralytic had faith. But there are other times, which even happens today, that the person who's sick does not have faith, but the relatives or friends or the family, they have faith. And they ask God for healing on behalf of that person. And God heals that person even though the person might not have faith. But he heals them on be because of the faith of the others who are praying for him, asking God. Or the opposite can happen. The person who's coming to God, the sick person, has faith. But the people who are helping him or her don't have faith. And again, God heals uh, the person regardless of those who are carrying him whether they've got faith so we actually i didn't i kind of knew but i didn't know it properly but when i read it then i understood that relatives family friends etc who are praying for someone who does not have faith shouldn't say, oh, because my husband or my children or my mother or whatever is, doesn't believe, it means that God's not going to listen to my prayers. Because as we, we just read from the Holy Fathers, that God can heal or whatever, answer our prayers for someone who does not have faith, as long as we have faith, the ones who are asking on their behalf. Then we continue on, and some of the scribes, in other words the teachers of the law, were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? 
So the scribes, who were very proud people, people that loved glory, blind, willfully blind, they were sitting there in the house and as soon as they heard Christ say, your sins are forgiven, you, son, your sins are forgiven, they began to judge within their hearts and said, only God can forgive sins. How dare he say that? Who's he? Only God can forgive. And that's true. Only God can forgive. But their own thoughts is what's going to condemn them because let's see what it says. It says in the interpretation, but the Lord gives yet more evidence that he is God by knowing what is in their hearts. God alone knows what is in the heart of each. But although the Lord had revealed their innermost thoughts, and even though God, meaning Christ, said to the Pharisees, to the scribes there, what they were feeling, what was in their heart, instead of saying, oh, only God can forgive sins, but this person just read, just knew what was in my heart, and only God knows what's in our hearts, which means then he must be God. But they didn't repent. They didn't, that didn't move them. Because, as it says here, they didn't admit that he who knew their hearts could heal sins as well. In other words, that he who knew what was in their hearts was God himself. But they did not repent. They did not humble themselves because they never went there to listen to Christ's teaching, to learn. They went there to catch him out and things like that and then to distort and say he said this and he said that and things like that. So when a person hasn't got a good disposition, in other words, if a person hasn't got a good heart to learn, then the, those people just make up and become victims, not victims, um, children of the devil, in other words. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Christ says, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. Now, I used to read this for years and years, and I'm sure a lot of you have heard this. What does this mean when he says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your bed and walk? So the explanation says, he rebukes them by saying, you think that I am blaspheming by promising to forgive sins, which is a great thing, and that I resort to this because it's something which cannot be verified. So Christ is saying, you think I'm an imposter. You think that I'm a liar. You think I'm a deceiver, because if I say your sins are forgiven... There's no way of checking whether they've been forgiven or not because it's an invisible thing. So even though that's the greater, he says, I will do the lesser. I will now tell this person to rise to show that for him to rise, he must have been forgiven his sins. I'll explain that one more time. If I go to someone and say, your sins are forgiven... No one knows. I can say, yes, yes, his sins have been forgiven. But how, does it, how do people know? They don't know. But if I say to someone, get up and walk, and they walk, well, then I'm not a liar. To say without proof that your sins are forgiven can be done by a hypocrite and a deceiver. So we go on with the Bible. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise Take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed and went out into the presence of them all so that all were amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. 
In another gospel reading in Mark, it says, When the crowd saw this, they marvelled and glorified God who had given such power to men. Now let's look at what Blessed Theophilus says and also what St Nicolai says, because St Nicolai wrote a lot also in his book on the homilies, which he explains the, the, a lot of the gospel teachings. First, he forgives the sins of the sick man and then he cures the disease since the most severe illnesses occur for the most part as a result of sins. When I first read this somewhere else, the person, I don't know if it was a, a, a wrong translation, but it said all sicknesses are because of sins. And that disturbed me because I go, well, that doesn't seem to make sense because when we did the life of Elder Porfirios, who was a great saint, he had nearly every sickness the most horrible sickness, but yet he was a saint. So how can we say then his, his sin, his, um, his, he had sicknesses because of his sins? So I was, I was going to leave that out and say there must be something wrong there. I will wait for a correct interpretation of that. And as I kept on reading, 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 I found it, which this is the proper way. It said, since the most severe illnesses occur for the most part, not always, but for the most part, as a result of sins. So our sicknesses can be as a result of our sins, but maybe not as a result of our sins. By healing the body, the Lord makes credible and certain the healing of the soul as well, confirming the invisible by the means of the visible. Here it is. Forgiveness of sins is invisible. But what Christ does is he makes this person walk and says, there it is. Can you see it? The person is walking. This person that was paralysed for so many years is now walking, which now means that the invisible, the forgiveness of sins, did occur because in this person's case, his sickness was as a result of his sin. The people would have known that. The people of the area would have known that this person led a bad life, whatever, and that his, his paralysis was as a result of his sins. Perhaps they were thinking thoughts like these. Look at this deceiver. He doesn't want to heal the body, which is visible. This is, this is when they were judging. And instead claimed to heal the soul, which is invisible, saying your sins are forgiven. So that's why Christ says, take up your bed and walk to confirm even more that the miracle was not a fantasy and also so that those who were present, who see the miracles, and also to show that he had not only healed him, but had filled him with strength. This part I really, really found quite powerful. When someone has been sick for years, paralysed, for example, and, they start, and then the doctor says, oh, I think he's coming out of it, he's starting to get better. But sometimes it takes months and months and months for that person to get better. So we can say that the body is now healing. In this case, to make the miracle without doubt so that no one can say, oh, he was going to get better anyway. What happens here? That not only does this person rise from his bed, but his whole body is perfect because there's no muscle wastage. The person gets up strong not gets up weak and says, oh, I, can, I'm, I think I'm starting to walk a little bit, I'm, I'm getting better. But this person got up 
and was able to carry his own bed. See, every single sentence of the Bible has significance. As we read, we pass over that. Oh, he picked up his bed. But do we click there the fact that how can this person that was paralysed, even, even if it was by nature that he was getting better, as the atheist will say, oh, he was going to get better anyway. Okay, fair enough. Mr. Atheist, how do you explain then that the person got better straight away and was able to carry his bed? Because they thought that Christ was just a man and they just found all these things to be unbelievable. But this shows that he's not a man. Sorry, that he is a man, but he's also God. St. Nikolai writes, This crowd that so marvelled and glorified God was far better than the narrow-minded scribes who were infected by envy. Because even though they came there for bad reasons, those teachers of the law, they came there for bad reasons, but when they saw the fact that Christ could read their minds, read their hearts, he knew what was in their hearts, and the fact that he did this miracle in front of them, they should have repented, but they didn't. They glorified God, the people, the people who were, according to the teachers of the law, uneducated, they glorified God who had given such power to men. See what it says in the Bible? It says, they glorified God who had given such power to men. So the people present, even though they saw the miracle, still looked at Christ as a man. But the crowd did not see and acknowledge the Lord Jesus as the only begotten Son of God. They didn't acknowledge him as God. So the miracle, as much as it was powerful, did not bring them to confess Christ as God. But anyway, those, the Pharisees that were present, the teachers of the law, when they said only God can forgive sins, that's correct. And with their own mouth, they proclaimed God, Christ as God because they just saw that the man walked, which means his sins were forgiven, and if sins are forgiven, it means Christ is God. So they themselves confessed the truth. Unfortunately, they um, found it they couldn't repent. So finally, in this miracle, we see that the spiritual gift and spiritual proof are sealed with the material gift and proof. In other words, the spiritual, that is, the forgiveness of sins, is confirmed by the visible, that is, that the man could walk. So that was the purpose of that miracle. Now we go to the second miracle, the healing of a leper. Leprosy is an is a extremely contagious disease that causes serious and permanent change to the body, including those who had it could lose their fingers, their nose and other parts of their body. In Christ's days, no leper could live in a walled town. Many towns were, had walls around them and some, of course, were villages. But though, though he might be able to live in an open village as long as he doesn't go near people, the leper. But wherever he was, he was required to have his clothing torn as a sign of deep grief and to go bareheaded to cover his beard with his mantle. Or if it was a woman, obviously they had no beards, but they had to cover their mouths with, with their clothing as if in lamentation at his own or her virtual death. Now, the reason why they had to expose their heads because leprosy caused people's hair to fall out. So by their heads being 
exposed and a person would see that they had no hair, they would immediately know that that person had leprosy. By the law, it said here that um, he had further to warn passerbys to keep away by calling out unclean, unclean, nor could they speak to anyone, nor could they uh, greet anyone. Because in the East, when you greet someone, you have to embrace them. So when you say to someone, greetings, you, you kiss them, etc. But you weren't allowed to touch that. So they weren't allowed to even say hello to anyone. And that, was, and that is written in the Old Testament. That is the law that God gave to those who had this disease, had to go around bareheaded, had to have their, their clothing covering their mouth, which I don't really understand, but anyway, that's, that's how it was. And they also had to call out unclean, unclean, so people could keep away, and they, didn't, they weren't allowed to talk to anyone apart from saying unclean, unclean. So now that we've got a bit of a history of the, what is leprosy, now we come to um, the Bible story, the, the actual account. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes follow him, and behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So the explanation says that this person came up, kneeled down, fell on his face. Now, let's look at the words that, that the leper used. He said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And the Holy Fathers say that this leper is worthy of admiration. Having such a divine understanding concerning the Lord when he said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The leper did not say, if you ask God then, then, uh, I will then I'll be healed. The leper didn't say to Christ, pray for me, like the people would say to the prophets in the Old Testament. And the prophets would pray to God to make someone better. But this leper actually said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The leper had both faith and understanding, believing in Christ as God. He didn't say, pray for me. And by the way, I, I forgot to mention to you over here, in the other example of the, um, of the paralytic, that Christ said, I say to you, arise, take up your bed. The prophets never said that. The prophets never said, I, nor, does, nor do the saints, Orthodox saints, ever say, I tell you to get up or whatever. The prophets would say, in God's name, etc., etc., even the apostles, in the name of Christ, I say to you, walk. Not through. But Christ doesn't, doesn't say that. Being God himself, he says, I tell you to get up. And in this case, this particular leper, he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The leper had both, yes, we said that, and he didn't look at Christ as a physician, as a doctor. Because in those times, no doctor could make leprosy, could heal leprosy. So there was no point in going to doctors. The only, the only one who could make a leper well, which they knew, was if God did a miracle. Only God. So God alone could, can heal such ailments as these. This shows that the leper thought of Christ as God by saying, you can make me well. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, I am willing, 
be cleansed. See, we have to take note of those words. I am willing. The saint, the, when you, even if you go to an Orthodox saint today and you say, please pray for me, go, the saint will say to you, if it's God's will, I will pray, but it's up to God, not, not up to them. Perhaps they have boldness to pray on behalf of us, but they themselves will say, it's not I that heals you, it's Christ that heals you, it's God that heals you. But in this case, Christ doesn't say that. He says, I am willing, be cleansed. He touches the leper to show that he is not subject to the law, which forbids one to touch the lep- a leper. So that's also important. He put out his hand, Christ put out his hand, and touched the leper, forbidden by Jewish law, as given by God. You don't touch a leper. So why did he touch him? Because he's the one that gave the law. He's above the law. He doesn't need the law. He's the master of that law and that these observances apply only to man, not to God. So this, the fact that he went up and touched him shows that he is above the law that he, because he gave the law. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now again, we read the Bible and we kind of miss points. Immediately, the word immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So in other words, this person, who probably had fingers missing, and his nose had fallen off, and probably his ears, and other parts of his body, this person, where this leprosy just ate away at his body, suddenly was healed completely. And that shows that this miracle was not a miracle that someone can say, oh, he got better because he was living in the mountains and the mountain air made him better or he drank some special spring water and that made him better. Maybe the spring water can make the person better, but I didn't know that the spring water can make someone grow ears and grow fingers. So why does Christ say don't tell anyone? Fleeing glory, he commands the leper to tell no one, but rather to show himself to the priest. Fleeing glory. But Christ cannot become proud. So what's he fleeing from? As an example for us to see that even if a person does a miracle, that they must not wish for it to be broadcast everywhere around the world or to other people which is a sign of pride. So Christ is, as an example, saying this is the way it is. And that's why the saints, our Orthodox saints, when you read the lives of saints, you see how they used to, uh, even if, if they performed a miracle, which a lot of times they, they, they didn't want to do them because they were scared of falling to pride, and a lot of them then would run off. They would, they would take off because they didn't want people to glorify them. And the Bible goes on, However, the leper went out and began to proclaim it freely, and to spread the matter, the report went around concerning him all the more. And then it says, A great multitude came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city. I think in another part of the Bible it says, So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed, and they came to him from every direction. I underlined this particular part. I underlined, 
and a great multitude came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. Because of this miracle, people heard about it and then they began to come to Christ, but not only to be healed, but to listen to his words. So it says, And a great multitude came together to hear and to be healed. Then it says that Christ could no longer openly enter the city. Why? Because there was just too many people. So he went and went into the wilderness, into the desert, to pray. And they came to him from every direction. So even though he went, wherever he went, they would follow. Unlike today, the gurus and other people that do miracles, whether Protestants or whatever, these people that do uh, all these miracles, they don't withdraw anywhere. They just... They just do miracles continually. And the more people glorify them, the more they love it. But here we see, even though they say, oh, look, I'm a Christian. But if you're a Christian, why don't you look at the examples here? And the example is that Christ, even though he was God, didn't just hang around and wait for people to glorify him. And he had no need of that. But he used to go to show us the example he went away, but the people followed him. Later on, when we start to examine the charismatic movement, etc., you will see there that these people who are supposedly doing miracles, they love it more than the air that they breathe, the attention, the glory, and they need it continually. But that's not according to the gospel. And the miracles that they do, whatever miracles you can call them, they're always something which is like uh, illusionary. But we'll look at that next time. Now, the healing of a possessed man. We'll go to the third example. He went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them every Sabbath day. And the Holy Father say here against those who say, what do you have to go to church for? Well, in those days, Christ being a Jew, went to the synagogue where the Jews would gather to read the scriptures and it was then that Christ entered the synagogue and taught. Now, what the Holy Fathers say, that that's why God gave us Sunday. Sunday is a day where you go to church to be part of the liturgy, to receive the grace of God which comes through the liturgy, and to hear the word of God, to listen to the words being sung, etc. Because a lot of times, people are so busy and so out of it that they never hear anything, like the whole week. Children running, jobs here, there, everywhere. And that's why God has ordained that people go to church, come to talks, etc. But also to read books to read the Bible every day, a little section. Even if you read a little section every day, it changes you. I've, I've given this example before where the Holy Fathers say, you've got to tap and the water drips onto, a, onto the rock there. Drip, 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 drip over many, 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 many years. And even though water doesn't do anything to cement or to a, to a rock, but if the water keeps on dripping over a number of years... What happens is that that area where it's dripping begins to have a little bit of a groove. So 
let's look at our hearts as being hard like the rock. Our hearts are hard. And a lot of times we can't feel, we can't think about anything to do with God because of the worldly distractions, etc. And sins. But when you read the Bible, even a little bit every day, it's like that drip in tap. After a while, drip, 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 it makes a, a groove in the, um, a dent in the uh, cement. That's the same as our hearts. When we read a little bit every day, a little bit of prayer, a little bit of reading of, of the Bible, a bit of a life of saint, slowly, 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 the hard heart starts to soften and it has an effect. That's important. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Now this one here, I never really knew, even though I've, I, I read these things often, but I, until I read the Holy Fathers to explain, I never understood. It says, and they were amazed, the people in the synagogue were amazed at the teaching of Christ because he taught them with authority. What does that mean? Well, let's have a look now what this authority means and we'll see something very interesting. The interpretation says the Lord would rebuke when he taught. What's rebuke mean? He would tell the people what if they were doing something wrong. When he taught, he rebuked and not flatter as did the Pharisees. You know, flatter means when you say nice things to people. For he encouraged people, he advised people when he taught to do good. But also he warned them of the punishment awaiting the disobedient. So God, who is full of love, because people have this distorted view because of the carnal mind, that God is love. So when they hear a priest say something like, don't do this and don't do that, that's wrong, they go, he hasn't got love. But here we see Christ, that he not only spoke and said to people to do good, but he also said to people, but if you don't do good, this is what's going to happen. And we know this, if you read the Bible, we see those warnings. But today, the people don't want that. They want priests who stand up and speak nice things. And the priests who actually do say to people, well, you know, it's not right to watch inappropriate things on the television. It's not right to bring up your children like that. It's not right to steal from the government by putting in false claims and insurance claims and everything else. It's not right. This is not right. That People don't like that. So why did they hate Christ in those times? Because he exposed that what they were doing was wrong. And if you look at the Orthodox saints, when they were persecuted, they were persecuted because they told the people what they were doing was wrong. When you read the Old Testament and you see the prophets, people say, oh, the prophets were people who used to say the future. A prophet in those days, was, he might say the future, yes, but a prophet was a, was a holy person who could heal, he taught people, but he also warned people. He rebuked people. So today, 
there is a complete distortion in the church and unfortunately that's what people want that's what people get people want priests who don't speak about their sins well a lot of the times that's what they're getting but as we know here a true pastor is one who speaks about the sins of the people. Read any saint, the greatest of saints in the Orthodox Church, who were full of love, but from their love they would speak up and warn people and say, what you're doing is wrong, the way you're going, you're going to go to hell. Because it's their love that they don't want to see anyone go to hell including themselves. And Saint Cosmas, the Greek saint that went around during the time of the Turks, he went all around different parts of Greece where there were people were becoming Muslim and the Greeks were a whole mess there. And he, was, he went around teaching people and he would say, when you do a wedding, you don't have music and dancing and things like that, which is demonic. You sing spiritual songs. So he was telling the people what they're doing is wrong. And he said these, these words, which I never forget, and I always use them for myself. And the words that he said, if I, as a priest, I mean, he, he's talking about himself, if I, as a priest, do not tell you that the things that you're doing are wrong, then God will put me in hell for not doing my duty as a priest. He had a conscience that he has to tell the people the truth. Now, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. He cried out with a loud voice saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So the fathers say, first, the demon accuses him by saying, um, have, you know, have you come to destroy us? Many of the demons. And then he flatters the Lord, thinking that Christ would be softened by flattery and leave him alone. So the demons, that's what they do. They threaten and then they praise. Threaten, praise, praise. Most of the time they praise so that the person can become soft. Because when a person's praised, they lose their grace. Because praise gives pride. And the demons know that. We've done all that in talks number 30, 32 and 33, 34, I can't remember now. But all those talks that we've done, we talked about that the demons love to get even other people to praise. And that's why a lot of times our holy saints, to people who did that, they would say, stop. Stop what you're doing. Because it's like they're putting the person into temptation. Yes, even saints were in danger of falling into pride. doesn't matter how progressed a saint is. He can be at the top, really high up level of spirituality, but, but the Holy Fathers teach even they can fall into pride if they're not careful. So if they can fall into pride, we can fall into pride. But yet we hear people continually praising their children, praising their children, even though we hear that Elder Porfirio said that his mother never praised him. Does that mean she put him down and, and, and pulverised him? No. 
No, his mother gave him love, encouragement, but this praise, this continual praise that people are doing to everything, every single thing that the child does, oh, that's really good. That's excellent. You're special. You're great. This and that. Well, you might say, oh, what's, what's that priest talking about now? He's, he's saying um, that we shouldn't praise children, how stupid that is, etc. But yet, in the, in the world of psychology, even they're saying that those children who are brought up like that become crippled, emotionally, mentally crippled. They can't function. They need praise continually. They become quite sick. And a lot of those people that I've encountered as a priest, they can't lead spiritual lives either. They just need that attention, that that praise continually. That's not good. Now, some of you are becoming a bit, might get a bit angry and say, oh, what's he talking about? If you've never been here before, it will be difficult because I've discussed this over a number of uh, years and also I've gone into detail about the effect of pride, etc. So you shouldn't react and say, oh, I don't believe in all that. Never reject as we'll see later on as we go on. Study. Look. I hear things continually. I might hear a talk or I might read a book and I see something, I go, what is that? I can't, I can't really understand that. That seems to me alien. Well, who am I? What am I going to do? Reject what a saint just wrote? Or I might even read something in the Bible and go, that seems strange. How, how, can, how can that be? You don't reject you say, there must be an explanation. Maybe I'm too stupid to understand it at this time. But when, when the right time comes, I'll read it somewhere else. Someone will explain it to me. Never reject, because you might become like the scribes there, that even though they saw a miracle, they, they, they still reject it. We don't want to become like that. So first he, he accuses Christ, then he flatters him. But, Je- but Jesus rebuked him, told him off in other words, saying, be quiet and come out of him. And it says there that Christ who teaches us not to rely on the testimonies or evidence provided by demons rebukes him. St. Paul did the same. We read in the Acts of the Apostle that there was a girl who had a spirit of uh, like prophecy. She would tell people things, um, secret things, all these type of things, or might tell them some little bit of future which was not really anything special but things that the demons could arrange. We've discussed all this before. Anyway, and uh, when the Apostle Paul went there and then he and someone else, I've forgotten now which other Apostle, and then this girl who was possessed was calling out, which the demon, you know, was saying to the people, these people are people of God, listen to them. And St. Paul said, stop. And Christ, he says, stop. Why? Because if later on when the people heard Apostle Paul and the other apostles preaching, they go, that girl was correct. These people are of God. Then later on the people would say, well, if she was right for that, meaning the demon, if the, but they thought it was the girl, if the girl was right for that, then she would be right for other things. And then from that, she, the demon gains access to people's trust and then he just teaches whatever he wants. And here Christ teaches us, rebuke. Don't listen to these people. And, and he tells the demons, stop, be quiet. Then the demon threw the man down before them all, and it came out of him and did not hurt him. Now here it says 
that God permitted the demon to throw the man down. And when we say throw down, we mean violently throw down. So that those present would, would know that this man was truly possessed. Because sometimes people thought, oh, he's just mad, like people say today. Some people are possessed but, and they just say, oh, he's mad. Some, well, that's only few. But there are people that are possessed and people think that they're mad or doctors can say that they're mad. And all those are in past talks. But Christ wanted to show that this person was not mad, that this person had a demon in them and that's why he made the person to fall down. And when they fall down, they fall down violently. The demons actually uh, you know, do a very bad job there. And that way, it says here, that he wanted the people to know that the words which this person spoke were the words of the demons, although it was the tongue of the man which pronounced them. Which words was Christ worried about? Let's go back and see. It says here, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He did not want the people to have trust because later on when Christ would do a miracle, then they would say, that man was correct. He is the Holy One of God. And Christ didn't want that. And Christ was saying, I will show you who's speaking in that, in that man. And then he allowed all that to happen. And people were amazed and said to each other, what a word, in other words, what a teaching this is. For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And the news about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Because of this miracle, the word went around and started spreading. I mean, this was something that was great. Something that was without doubt. This person was possessed, those who, who knew how to interpret that he was possessed. This person was possessed. And only God can make a possessed person well. Now, some possessed people have gone to doctors, psychiatrists, etc. And they go to them, but the doctors say at the end, they don't say they're possessed because they don't believe in that type of things, most of them. But they say uh, he can't be healed. And they just sedate them as much as possible. That's only some cases. Possession is there, but not that every single person is possessed. We shouldn't do that. Now, St. Theophilac says, since teaching, this is wonderful, this part. And this is what I was trying to say before. We're going to see how God uses the senses, the, the to, things that are physically there, to show the spiritual. It says... Since teaching did not bring the unbelieving to belief. Because he, he was teaching before he did this miracle. Didn't it say that? Was this the one about the synagogue? Yes. So he was teaching and people were spiritually dead, one can say. They couldn't understand what, he's, what he was saying. Now, what does he do? He does a great miracle to awaken them spiritually. So it says here, Since teaching did not bring the unbelieving to belief, the Lord proceeds to work miracles like a doctor giving stronger medicine. The word wasn't enough for them, so now he says, I have to give you stronger medicine because you're very sick and I have to do this miracle to shake you. Therefore, the Lord works a miracle in Capernaum, for there was much unbelief there. 
and the people needed much help to acquire faith. So when he had taught them sufficiently as one with authority, because as I said before, authority meaning that the prophets used to say, the Lord says these things. When the prophets taught, they would say, the Lord says these things. Or they would say, um, the other little curious, or the other one, uh, or whatever, or, or God heals you, etc. But he did not say that. He says, I say unto you, as befits the true Son of God. He adds to his teaching this miracle and heals the man possessed of a demon, thus confirming his word, bringing people closer to faith because they saw something that otherwise they couldn't penetrate into because of their carnal mindedness, because they were spiritually dead. The fourth miracle is the healing of a centurion servant. Now, this is very interesting. I actually I learnt a lot putting this one together. It says, now, now when Jesus had entered Kapunaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralysed, dreadfully tormented. The fathers say the centurion was a Roman officer. He wasn't a Jew. He was a pagan. His servant was near to death. When the centurion, one, I think some holy fathers say that his servant was actually another soldier. But even though they, that this servant, this soldier was under him, this centurion had so much love for this particular person that he actually wanted him to be healed. When the centurion heard that Christ had arrived in Kapernaum, he made an effort to go out to meet him personally and ask him help for the young man dear to him. The centurion did not bring his servant lying on the bed to Jesus as he believed that Jesus could heal him even from a distance. Again, this is great faith. Others say, come to my house to heal whatever. But this one didn't say that. He actually says that he, he actually believed that Christ could heal him from far away. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Christ did not say to the centurion as he asked others, do you believe I can do this? Because a lot of times Christ would say to someone, do you believe I can do this, as, as we're going to see soon? He, he doesn't say that. He already saw the faith in the centurion's heart. In other words, the centurion, the pagan, the one who didn't know about the laws of Moses and the prophets, etc., a person who didn't even know about the teaching of God, because he was a pagan, he had so much faith in him, in Christ, because he had heard about him, that he had done that, about the miracles. He had never heard his teaching, but he heard about his miracles, and this gave him so much faith that Christ didn't even have to say to him, Do you believe? Because sometimes people used to come to him and say, uh, They had some faith, and Christ would say, Do you believe? And then that would increase their faith. They go, Yes, yes, I believe that kind of increase. So Christ was trying to bring them to increase their faith. In this case, he didn't, he didn't have to do that because this person was full of faith. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Christ did not say to the centurion, as he asked us, do you believe that I can do this? He already saw the faith in the centurion's heart. Christ spoke with authority and power as no doctor has ever dared to say. What did he say? I will come and heal him. I will come and heal him. Not God will come to heal him. 
being that he's God, nor did he say, I will pray for God to heal him, but he said, I will come to heal him. Christ spoke deliberately in this way in order to call forth the centurion's reply in front of the Jews. For when God works one work, he does it in such a way that his action is not just for service in one area, but in many. In other words, he's saying that he did this on purpose, Christ did this on purpose, where he said, I will come and heal him, because now the centurion's going to answer something, which is going to put the Jews down. But it says here that when whatever Christ did, he didn't just do it to help the person. He, he did it to help and those around. Everything, Christ was always looking at ways to benefit everyone. So this is not just to benefit this centurion and his servant. But this, what hap- what's going to happen now, is it says here, it says here, um, number one, that these, these are the ways that he, that he does it. One, he's going to heal the sick servant. Two, to reveal the centurion's great faith by what the centurion is about to say. Three, to reprimand the Jews for their unbelief. And four, to reveal his prophecy that those who think themselves worthy to enter into the kingdom will not enter, and those who have no expectation of entry will enter. Remember, the first will be last, those who think they're first will be last, and those who are last will be first. Here, the Jews thought that they were first because they had the truth. God revealed to them the true faith, because the Jewish religion was the truth, but they became proud and they were, in a way, like a lot of Orthodox Christians are today, where they say, oh, we have the truth. Orthodoxy, we are the truth. Yes, we are the truth, but the saints never spoke like that. As I've said in other times, the saints never said, we are the truth and everyone else is going to go to hell. They don't speak like that. Because the saints had this as we say in Greek, this mentality which is, because I have the truth, God will ask more of me than what he'll ask of the others that don't have the truth. And, and if I don't act on the truth, if I don't lead a spiritual life because I know the truth, then I will go to hell 100%. As for the others, we don't know. God takes care of them in his own ways. And we're going to see this continually. The worst people are the ones who know the truth and don't do it. And you'll see this right through tonight's theme as well and as in the Gospel and the Holy Father. That's the worst. And that's why the saints never had this chauvinism, this thing and saying, oh, we are the best because we're orthodox with the truth. Yes, orthodoxy is the truth. People who go around and say in that way, we have the truth, but they're proud in a way that they put everyone else down, then this becomes like it says here. The first, in other words, those who believe they're first, will be last. And the last will be first. Who's Christ referring to the last? Is he referring to those who are not orthodox? No one knows. But the fathers say, we will be surprised on the last day. Who we thought would go to heaven, won't go to heaven, and who we thought wouldn't go to heaven, will go to heaven. So that's something that should fear us and not sit there with puffed up heads and say we're the best because we're orthodox. So that's what the Jews were doing then. We are, we are the Jews, we are the chosen ones, and everyone else are animals and everyone else is worse. The centurion answered and said, these are the great words, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof 
but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. See the humility there? Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. For I am also a man under authority. I'm an officer. I have soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So he's saying, I have authority. Like I have authority for my soldiers, you also have authority. Well, let's have a look. Explanation. What a great difference between the humility, faith, and repentance of this pagan, in other words, this person who wasn't a Jew, and the pride, coldness, and unrepentance of the Pharisees, in other words, those who had the truth. The centurion did not know Moses and the prophets. He never read the Bible, the Old Testament. He knew nothing about those things. His natural mind, just his, his mind, as God gave him his mind, was this, I think St. Nikolai says this, his natural mind was enlightened to see the truth that Christ was not an ordinary man but God himself. What great faith he had in Christ and his power. When I read the Bible, and I hope for you people also to, if you don't already, to do the same thing. When you read, don't look at the Bible and say, this is history, this is what happened. We always relate it to ourselves, that's, that's what the Bible is about, and to, and to today. Like there were scribes and Pharisees in those days, there are scribes and Pharisees today. Like there are those who, who thought that they were the best, there's people who think themselves the best in the church like that as well. Like there was proud people then, well there's proud people now including ourselves. The centurions, this is, what, this is what it means when the centurion says, I say to this person, come and he comes, and this person go and go. The centurion says, if I, who am a servant of the Roman emperor, command the soldiers who are under me, how much more so are you able to command death and illnesses so that they depart from one and, and affect another? So in other words, he's saying, you, you as God, can say to the illness, go to that person, but you also, as God, can say, go away from that person. You can heal them. For illnesses of the body are God's soldiers and officers of punishment, the fathers say. They are, they are servants of God, illnesses, etc., afflictions. They serve a purpose. Therefore, sickness is God's servant, and when the master says, meaning Christ, go, it goes. And when it says come, it comes. Christ can bring the sickness to someone, he can also take it away. And this is what the centurion understood. But here he speaks only a word and he will get up. Oh, how this great faith on the part of a pagan must shame many of us today, St. Nikolai says. And know the scriptures but have a hundred times less faith. In other words, St. Nikolai is saying, even though today a lot of Orthodox Christians know the Bible or have some idea of the Bible, but yet don't have the faith that this person had. The centurion knew that Christ was able to heal his servant from afar and that's why he said to Christ, only speak a word and it will be done. And you might say, oh, how dare you say that we don't have faith. But today, how many times I come across people who might be sick themselves or their children might be sick or some disaster's happening 
and they go to the church with a lack of faith and say, God, please help, whatever. But they've got lack of faith. They don't have the faith to say, if God wants, he can make the, my child better, let's just say. If he doesn't, he doesn't. It must be for a good reason. But that faith doesn't even exist. But the other faith is even to have faith to say, you can make that person better. You can do that. Instead, they go to the magicians. They go to the sorcerers. They have more faith in them. They come to the church and they say to the priest, the priest of God, they say, uh, Father, can you pray for my uh, child? He's sick. And the priest does the prayer and then the person says, dollar, two dollars, five dollars, whatever. But then they go to the magician. Faith. They have faith, a lot of faith. And, I'm, and, I, and I say this 100%. They have faith in that person, but not in God, not in his priests. And so they go to this person and the person says, yes, yes, I can make that person better. I, I can make some person better. In other words, they're like God. I can make that person better. But it's going to cost, I've got a special thing, I'm going to give it to you, whatever it is. And they say, well, it's going to cost you $1,000 the first time. 1000 he's two. But then it's going to cost you three, four, five, six, pick up sticks, get it, seven, eight, nine, whatever. And they will, and they will, um, and they just give the money. I've, I've spoken to people who have gone to these things. And I say to them, how much did you give? They go, oh, 10,000, 20,000. I go, really? I said, I, I, I'd be lucky to see 20 cents from you even to buy a candle. 20 cents, it's very hard. So for the church, it's so hard to give. No trust, no faith. If a person goes to the priest, God has given authority to the priest such that, someone said they heard this on a talk the other day, I said, oh, thank you for telling me. It was a priest in um, England and he said that when a priest prays for the people, God listens. It's like it happens. Even if the priest lacks faith, that not, he's not a very strong priest. But if a person goes to the priest and says, can you please pray for me, God listens. But when the priest prays for himself, uh, God doesn't listen much for himself. And we see that example here. Christ did nothing for himself. The saints would never really perform miracles for themselves. That's why we see all the Porfirios, where we read that life, full of sicknesses. He made others better, but he didn't make himself better. To let you in on a little secret, I've... I've a lot, a lot of, as a priest, people ask for commemorations, commemorations. And I noticed one thing uh, that I often would say, I just, I don't know, I can't believe it. It's like a person asks for prayers and whatever they ask, a lot of times it happens because that's, that's because they came to the priest. It doesn't matter which, which, which priest. But if I pray for myself, it just doesn't happen. And then I remembered what that person said about that thing. So someone says, oh, I'm really, really sick. You do a prayer, they go, oh, I feel better. That can happen a lot of times if it's God's will. I feel sick. 
they don't get better. So that is uh, interesting that I had to hear it from their tongue because I'd noticed that all these years, but I never could really work it out properly. The priest has one function, to pray for the people. The priest connects, the priest is what we say, he's in the middle here, he connects heaven with earth through the priest. God gives that. And we'll see. See how when God healed, when Christ healed the leper, he said, go show the priests. Because in those days, the priest had to say whether someone was a leper. The priest says, yes, you are a leper. You are no longer allowed to live in the city. And then if the person got better by God's miracle, they had to go back to the priest. The priest examines and says, yes, you are better. I now allow you to go back. So Christ was shown. He said, go to the priest to show he's not against the priesthood. And that's the same as in the church. As time goes on, hopefully a lot of you will come to that understanding. When Jesus heard it, meaning what this centurion said, he marvelled and said to those who have followed, Assuredly I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. That's a stab at the Jews. I have not found such faith even amongst the Jews who are meant to be the chosen people. Why does Christ marvel? He marvels in order to show them, the apostles, what should be marveled at in this world. What should be marveled at? He marvels at the great faith of this man in order to teach his followers that they should also marvel at great faith. That's what a priest looks at you know, as well. Looks at the faith. Not how much money someone has, what education they've got. Faith. That is the most important thing. And that's what he's saying here. Christ is saying, marvel at people who have faith. Indeed, there is nothing in this world of such wonder as a man's great faith. When Christ says, I've not found such great faith, not even in Israel... He means that the Jewish people's faith should have been greater than that of any other people on earth. Because God had, from the beginning, revealed his power, his might, his care, his love to them through countless signs and wonders and through the fiery words of the prophets and Moses, etc. They are the ones who should have the greatest faith at the time when Christ came to earth. And I will now extend that. The people who should have the greatest faith today are Orthodox Christians because the Orthodox Christians have the complete truth through the Holy Fathers, with the saints, the mysteries of the church, etc. We have everything. And therefore we should have the greatest faith. Not in a proud way. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed at the same hour. What does it mean by east and west? Why did Christ say that, here, how does he say it here? That many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The Jewish fathers there. 
and, and, and ours as well. He said east and west in order not to upset the Jews because that's exactly what happened. Many did come to the, to the Christian faith from east and west, from everywhere of, of the world, Greeks, Romans, Armenians, and all the people of Europe, those countries all changed and became Christian. While in other countries, parts of the country changed, like Arabs, Egyptians, Indians, Persians, Chinese, Japanese, Af Africans. While the sons of the kingdom, because Christ mentions the sons of the kingdom, the Jews, to whom the kingdom was first offered, have remained firm in their unbelief right through to the present day. They still don't believe. They're still waiting for the Messiah. Even though the, their scholars, the ones who study, not the ordinary people, but their scholars know very well that Christ is the Messiah because their books, which is the Old Testament that we, we also recognise, their books fully show that Christ was that one. They know that. But from their pride, they can't admit it. And therefore, the first shall be last and the last first. By saying outer darkness, because he said the outer darkness, he shows that there must be also an inner darkness. Though hell, there's an outer darkness and there's an inner darkness. And the inner darkness is not as bad as the outer darkness. So in hell, Christ is saying... There are varying degrees of punishment, which that we, we, we heard that in talks 29 and 30. So who is he saying the outer darkness? Interesting. He's referring to the Jews of the time who knew the truth who saw the miracles, who had all the writings of their prophets and Moses, which said that Christ is the Messiah and they rejected. And he says, for them, in other words, who knew the truth, will be the outer darkness, will be the worst of hell. But for those who weren't given that opportunity to the same extent, depending on whatever their denial is, they go into what's called the inner darkness. The same thing happens today. This is why the Holy Fathers weren't proud. The Orthodox Christians who know the truth and reject it will go to the outer darkness because they had the truth. They had miracles. They had the mysteries of the church. And if they reject it, it's the worst. Nothing can be worse than someone who knows the truth and rejects it. So see, we don't just look at it and go, oh, the Jews went to the outer, the outer darkness and all this. That's there. That's, that happened then. But let's look at ourselves. If we reject the truth, knowing the truth, then we will become the worst. See, we all, I always try to bring it back on ourselves. That's the best. That's why not many people come, because they don't like... Uh, they don't like when the priest brings it back on ourselves. And when I bring it back, when I say on ourselves, I mean myself as well. Remember, I'm the one who's teaching you people. So if I'm teaching, therefore I will be judged worse than you because I am the one that's teaching you. I'm the one that knows much of this, what I'm teaching you. So if I reject what I'm teaching you, 
then I will be worse off than those who don't know much. Can you see why priests, it's very hard for a priest to be uh, proud because if he really is conscious of his responsibility, then he would be in fear that he can lose his soul if he does not uh, practice exactly what he's, be, what he's teaching as well. The last miracle, number five for this session, is the resurrection of the son of, the, of a widow at Nain. Nain. Nain was a place there in, in Palestine, there, whatever. It says here, but before we go on, it says, because the Lord, while not even present, had healed the centurion's servant, he now performs another even more remarkable miracle. He does this so that no one could say, what's so remarkable about healing that, that soldier's servant? He, he probably wasn't going to die anyway. He was probably going to get well. So it kind of leaves room a little bit there for people to have thoughts that perhaps it wasn't a great miracle because the person was going to get better, unlike the one with the paralytic, because the paralytic was wasted away from being paralysed all those years. There was no muscle, because he had to use the muscles for who knows how long. But then all of a sudden, bang, one can say, he's walking and picking up his bed, that's without a doubt. And the lepers, with their missing fingers and missing toes and missing other body parts, etc., all of a sudden they're perfectly well. There's no doubt about that. So here, there might be a bit of doubt. So what does Christ do? He says, no, no, there must be no doubt. People can have no excuse. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him in a large crowd. Explanation. Christ was travelling with a large group of disciples and other people. They had all seen Christ's many miracles in Kapernaum and were hoping to see and hear more. Not just to see miracles, but they also wanted to hear the word of God. See, that's very important, both. To see miracles, okay. If you have to see them, you have to see them. But to hear the word of God. Imagine those who just want to see miracles. We'll talk about that after the break. Um... For Christ's miracles were something they had until then never heard of in Israel. And his words were like rivers of milk and honey. When he spoke, his words were so wise and great and powerful. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Now, people can say, Does that mean that we shouldn't weep when we go to a funeral? Because Christ's saying, Do not weep. Now, the atheists come along and say, Oh, it's all contradictory. The Bible's contradictory because when Christ went to Lazarus's tomb, it said he wept. Here he's telling the woman not to weep. So why is he allowed to weep? And why is this? And it's all people confused. They're confused because they don't want to know the truth. They don't study. It's like me sitting here and talking about a topic that I don't have much of an idea of. What, what topic? Let's just say a topic of, um, I don't know, something to do with um, 
it's part of Australian history or something, and I sit here and I say to you, oh, that happened like this, and I think this happened, and that happened, then happened there. And people would say, well, what, what do you know? You're saying stupidities. You don't even know about the topic, so you'd think to yourself, this person must be crazy. Well, it's the same thing. How can people say, oh, the Bible's contradictory and that doesn't make sense if they've never even studied or tried to investigate the matter, which is what Christ wants? Search the scriptures, study, look, pray to God, ask for enlightenment, not just reject. So let's have a look here. Do not weep. So Christ weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. He's saying he do not weep. So the fathers say, I think this one here was St. Nikolai, we know that tears are useful a Christian must mourn and weep for himself. We even hear the Holy Father say, weep for yourself. Cry about your sins. And not only that, but also weep for others. Weep for others and, the, and, and their sins. And the saints had such great love that they would weep for the whole world when they were praying. So what's, what's happening here? The woman's not allowed to weep, it seems. We weep as well, the fathers say, to, to when someone dies. We weep so that God grant them forgiveness and grant them the heavenly kingdom. So we're crying for God to forgive them any sins they may have. The woman, however, was not weeping in that way. She was weeping without hope. And she was furthermore not weeping for her child's sins, nor for her own sins, but for her physical loss, the fact that she lost her child, and for her child's apparent annihilation and for her eternal separation from him. She was crying because, in her opinion, she lost her son, her son's gone somewhere, wherever it's gone, and she will never see her son again. That's why she was weeping. And Christ says, weep not. Weep not in that way. Don't cry like that. And we covered this in talk 29. Don't weep in that way. And the same Paul says as well in his epistle, he says, don't weep like the pagans who cry and have no hope. But cry, if you're going to cry for the person, cry in the correct way. That is, that God grant forgiveness of sins and the kingdom of heaven. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak. Just quickly, it was forbidden for uh, the Jews to touch things that, dead, that was in contact with the dead and things like that. I don't really understand that. It's not important for me at this time. But that was their, that was their rule, and somehow it went too far. I don't really understand. I didn't have time to study it. That's not, I didn't think it was important. And Christ who made that law went up and touched the coffin in other words to show he's above the law. So let's go on to the explanation. The Lord Jesus commanded the dead boy in his own name and not as the prophets Elias and Elisha who prayed to God to raise the dead. When they prayed, that when they because they also did some miracles where they where someone, where um, people rose from the dead, but they would say, for God to raise them from the dead, in the name of God, in, with God's power. But Christ didn't do that. They were servants of the living God, but Christ is 
his only begotten son, and he says, I say to you, arise. Not God, but I say to you, arise. Thus showing that he performed this deed solely by his divine power. This miracle was not wrought by the faith of the boy's mother. Like other times, as we said, people have faith and all that. But this woman had no faith because she was crying in, in a hopeless way. She never asked him. As in the case of, um, I don't know how to say this, Jarius, Yarius, I'll say it in Greek, Yarius's daughter, neither did anyone in the funeral procession have such faith, uh, as was in the case of Lazarus, that when Christ came to the tomb, people were saying, him, you know, they were expecting, they had some faith, maybe he will raise him from the dead. This miracle was done purely out of Christ's compassion for the grieving mother. Now, one father said, perhaps um, he went up to her and when she saw him, maybe she knew about him and she might have started to get some faith, maybe. But the main thing is, I think most fathers say uh, there was no faith there, but he just went up. And what does this show us? This shows us that when God um, does miracles for anyone, whether Muslim, Buddhists, atheists, everyone. It could be from the faith of someone else. It could be their own faith sometimes if they ever have some. Or no faith at all. But God just out of love does a miracle. So the dead man sat up and began to speak so that some would not think that his rising was only an apparition, like a fantasy, like a, um, a, an apparition. A vision, sitting up and speaking in his definite proof of resurrection from the dead. For how can a dead person sit up and speak? Because if he just kind of sat up and then kind of the people might have said, oh, it's, um, it's not real. It's a, it's a demon or something like that. But he, the person, sat up and spoke. And then he took him and presented him to his mother. So that everyone can say, without a doubt, this was a true miracle because this person was dead and he presented him to his mother then fear came upon all and they glorified God saying a great prophet has risen up among us and God has visited his people and this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region the explanation is this fear was good as it was the fear of God and from this came the praise and glorification of God not necessarily Christ as God but they still glorified God because of the miracle. The people spoke of Christ as the true prophet who God had as early as Moses promised that he would send to the Israelites. This people was still not able to rise up to the understanding that Christ was the Son of God. That's why they said, a great prophet has risen up. Not that Christ is God, but that, he's a, that he is a great prophet, Okay, which isn't really true. So they were not able, they were so spiritually dead that they weren't able to get to that level as others did, like the centurion, who wasn't even um, um, Jewish. These people were still not able to rise up to the understanding that Christ was the Son of God, but darkened as they were, could only see Christ the Lord as a great prophet. Even though the elders in Jerusalem witnessed Christ's many miracles, they were unable to have insight, in other words, Okay, these people, they didn't believe properly. They looked at Christ as a prophet, but at least they had that. 
the Pharisees and the scribes who saw so many miracles didn't even look at him as a prophet, didn't look at him as anything really. For if they did, they would not have committed the terrible crimes of the condemnation, the killing of the Son of God. So at least if they had that he was a prophet, they would have said, oh, this person is from God, that he's a, he's a great man. And they wouldn't have done what they, what they did. But the thing is, they didn't do that. They didn't even recognise his miracles. They didn't recognise him as being God. So they, they saw his miracles, but didn't confess him as God. But the others did say that he was at least a prophet. News of the miracle that Jesus did in Nain spread throughout all Judea and the surrounding region. Obviously it would spread because it was such a great miracle. And the conclusion, we've finished this segment, the conclusion for the five examples, for carnal-minded people, spiritually dead people in other words, God allows signs and miracles to occur in order to convince them and bring them to faith. Because they were immersed in the concerns of life, worldliness, etc., they were virtually unable to receive benefit from the word of God. Through the means of visible signs, which were confirmed through the senses, sight, hearing, touch, smell, etc., a weak soul is drawn to the all-powerful and saving word of God. In other words, the main purpose of the miracles was to bring people to the word of God. It was a stepping stone. That's what we mean by signs, like we see a sign. We see a sign and we see children on the sign. What does it mean? It means to the driver, there's children ahead. That's a sign. A sign that there are children ahead. We might see another sign which might have there, like a, the road like that, I, I don't drive anymore, but it might mean that that's a dangerous curve. So the, it's a sign to the driver that you better watch out because it's a dangerous curve. Miracles were a sign that the word of God is important, powerful, necessary for the salvation of the soul. It's a sign. It's confirming. Listen to these words. These miracles show that these words are from God. Okay. With God's help, we have progressed through. And when we come back, we're going to speak about signs and wonders confirm the word, which is what I was just saying. And then we're going to see which, are, which is more powerful, which has a better effect, the word of God or miracles. So um, go and have a break and then we'll, we'll talk. I have ordered from overseas to make available for people to be able to purchase the explanations of Blessed Theophilact. There are four books, four books. So I'll be getting, there's just two examples. This is the explanation of Luke, St. Luke, the explanation of St. Mark's Gospel. It's another two, and I'm gonna get hard covers and soft covers. So I'm gonna buy about 15 sets for people who are interested, and I strongly advise, because you cannot study the Bible without explanations. Also, I'm just going to give out a little pamphlet at the end, how one should read or listen to the sacred scripture, just a little pamphlet. And at the end, I've just got the um, those people who are going to listen to the talk. It's www.chrysostompress, which is C-H-R-Y-S-O-S-T-O-M-Press.org. 
So that's the explanations of Saint Theophilact. Now also, for I like to always refer books. There are three books which we have available at the back. One is on spiritual reading, which I personally put together. I mean, I didn't write it, but I put all different articles. And this book uh, helps people to understand how to read spiritual books and not fall into deception by reading the wrong books. And this one is excellent, How to Approach the Reading of the Gospel and the Holy Fathers by St Ignatius. And this one here is, uh, explains, again, uh, in particular, about the gospel, how to approach it. The other, the other little poem is just a little short thing. This is a very, 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 very good book. And um, I recommend that one. And this last one on signs and on miracles and signs, which I'm basing a lot of this, these talks on, um, by Saint Ignatius Branchinov, uh, is also um, an excellent book, talking about the, a lot of these things. So those three are available at the back, and I recommend those three. So uh, signs and wonders. So, in St. Mark's Gospel, it says there that, and they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them, the apostles in other words, went out and preached everywhere, and God working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. So that's in Mark. In other words, that when the apostles preached the word, they did miracles at the same time so that people can see that their word was true, like I said before. But not only that, also in the Acts of the Apostles, there's another part which says that the apostles did a prayer which said, Lord, grant to your servants that with great boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. In other words, again, saying that signs and wonders would accompany the apostles at the same time as when they preached. Now, the question is, I'm hopefully preaching the word of God tonight, and why aren't I doing miracles? See, that's the thing. And why doesn't the church have these miracles, a lot of these miracles, like in the first centuries? And that's where we're going to tonight at the end. I will answer that question. With the help of, the, of wondrous signs, the apostles swiftly spread Christianity throughout the world throughout the pagan world. The signs were a clear and powerful witness of Christianity for the educated nations, in other words, the, Roman, the Romans, for those who dwelt in spiritual ignorance and barbarism. In other words, that God became man at the time of the Roman Empire. At the time that Christ came, the Roman Empire was at its peak. It had spread so many places in the world that it, it was hardly no places that they didn't rule. And that was used by God so that that same Roman Empire would be a way, because when the Roman, wherever the Romans went, they built roads, etc., etc. So that made it possible for the apostles to be able to use the pagan Roman Empire to spread the word everywhere. And 300 years later, the same Roman Empire which persecuted Christians took Christianity as their religion. Therefore, signs and miracles were given to support the word of God. We said that. 
they were a witness to the power and significance of the word. The five examples above confirm this, that Christ didn't just speak, but he did miracles to confirm that what he was saying was correct. But the main thing, as we're going to read here, the main thing is the word of God. That's the main thing. That's what God wanted for people to hear, to, to take notice of, the word of God. Signs, and here's the, um, the essence, signs and wonders are not needed where the word of God is accepted because the value of the word is understood. In other words, where people are accepting the word of God, where people understand the value of the word of God, where people are being affected by the word of God, listening to the word of God and changing their ways and their lives, then signs and wonders are not necessary. See, tonight, if I was speaking to pagans, perhaps God would allow so that uh, a miracle could occur to bring the pagans to, um, to some belief. But I'm not speaking to pagans, I'm speaking to Orthodox Christians. And I believe that the word of God is penetrating into a lot of people, as it does into, even, into, even to myself. A lot of times when a person speaks, the same, when, he, when he speaks, he himself is being effect, affected. And a lot of times, um, I've even heard this, that, they hear, that, that people who are speaking hear things that they never heard themselves before which shows that it's actually a, a, a mystery. So the, the word of God acts in one way, miracles act in another way. See, when someone listens to the word of God, it acts directly on the mind and the heart, directly, straight to the mind, straight to the heart, like what's happening tonight. While... When, when someone witnesses miracles, it does act on the mind and the heart, but through the senses, through our senses. Now, you might say, well, the word of God's going through to the ears and that, but that's not exactly the same way. The main thing is that when someone hears the word of God and it, and it goes straight to their minds, straight to their heart. When someone, listen, when someone witnesses miracles, it goes to their minds and hearts, but through their senses especially the visual. Now the question arises, as I, as I asked at the beginning, which of the two is more powerful? So let's look at three, three um, examples. The healing of the two blind men. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. Why did the blind men call Christ son of David. So we often read this, we hear it in the church, we hear it in the church, etc. So we say, why did these two blind men call out to Christ on the road and say, son of David? Because such a title was in Israel considered the greatest possible honour. As every righteous man was called son of Abraham, so when we hear this say, he is a son of Abraham. In other words, he is a, he is a 
child of God, he's a follower, he's pious, etc. They were called, so religious people were called son of Abraham. So every righteous ruler was called son of David because David was a king. So when someone was a powerful king, a good king, they would say he is a son of David. Christ had true authority and power. It is also probable that the blind men were thinking of the Lord Jesus as the Messiah when they called him the son of David because the whole people were waiting for the Messiah from God which would come from the house of David. In other words, it would be from the line of David. So that's why they called him son of David. It was an honour. And perhaps, the fathers say, perhaps they were thinking maybe this is the Messiah because the Jews were waiting for the Messiah. But what, what type of Messiah we're going to come to now? Which is very, very interesting that the way that they looked at the Messiah in those days is the way that, they looked at the, that the Jews look at the Messiah today as well, their, their Messiah, that they are waiting for. And when he had come into the house... The blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened. So when I read this at first, it said, um, St. Theophilact said that he, he didn't heal them on the road, but he went, he kept on going and he wanted them to go into the house so as to to um, rebuke the Jews. But I couldn't understand because he, he said the explanation, but it wasn't. I had to find it in St. Nikolai, if I remember right. So this is what it says. It says, even though the wise Pharisees and scribes could physically see the miracles that Christ had performed on many occasions, because they were blind physically, so they saw the miracles, they were incapable of sensing the presence of God in the person of Christ, while the blind men, even though they were physically blind, did see in Christ something special, something that was of God, if not God himself, thus condemning those Jews who did not have faith. The blind men were calling after Christ, but he did not turn around or go to them. Why not? Firstly... As we said before, when Christ ignores, like he ignored the Canaanite woman, and he, he um, people say, oh, look at it, he's so rude, he ignored the woman who was calling out for her daughter that was possessed. And now Christ is ignoring the blind people, the blind men, and people say, well, that's rude. Everything's rude. Everyone's rudely, it seems like that. Uh, firstly, to increase, to increase their faith in him. Secondly, in other words, he didn't, stop straight away but he wanted them to keep on asking and that's why when we pray to God for whatever we pray for he may not give it to us straight away one it might not be good for us at this time or secondly he wants to keep on making you to pray 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 so that it will increase your faith and that is a great someone said to me once I prayed for three years for something and then finally God granted that. And, and, and I said, why? I go, because probably you weren't ready at the time. And also, what happened during those three years? He goes, oh, I became more and more with faith. I said, well, that's the, that's, that's the purpose. That's why it says God is slow to hear but never forgets what, what you've prayed for. Slow 
to hear because it's good for him not to act straight away. Because it spoils us. So that's the first reason, to increase the faith in, in him by those from the men. Secondly, that many should hear the blind men's cries and thus examine their own faith. So when people would see the blind men saying, you know, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us, then people would say, oh, look at their faith. Do I have that faith? And thirdly, to show his meekness and his humility by shunning glory from men, avoiding to heal them on the road in front of the many that were, that were there, the crowds, but in a house with only a few people. Not that Christ needs to do that, but he did it for us to see. Unlike these miracle workers of today that do miracles publicly. The internet's full of them. You, you hear about it, you sit on the television. They're always doing these miracles. And like Benny, Benny Hinn, a.k.a. Benny Hill, he actually does miracles in front of not only the people that are there, but on the television. And he does not, he's not embarrassed at all. Head up high in his white suit or black, whatever he wears, and he's doing miracles there, and he loves it. He loves the attention. But here we see Christ avoiding to do it on the road as an example to us. Why did he ask the blind men, do you believe that I'm able to do this? When he knew and saw their faith, because as God he knows, He's he who sees all mysteries and knows all hearts. He asks them so that they should publicly proclaim their faith, both, both for their own sakes and that of others who were present. You know, I've said this before. People can say with words, I love you, and our husband can say to his wife, I love you and I'll never leave you. But then later on, if something happens to the wife, say she might become paralysed or something, then all of a sudden, the love's not there. So we can say a lot of things with words. These men can say, have mercy on us with words. But is it real? And um, Abraham had faith, but, but God took him up the mountain with his son, made him gather the sticks, and saying, you're going to sacrifice your son, and allowed him to go right up there tie his son down, pick the knife up and just about to stab him and said to stop. Why? Because it was necessary for Abraham to go through that process because that made him increase his own faith. God knows, but he allows things for us to be able to see it for ourselves and also for others to see it. And as well, it just increases the faith. It's not enough words. So... He asks them so they should publicly proclaim their faith both for their own sakes and for that of others who were present. He asks them if they believe, showing that faith can accomplish all things. Yes, Lord, they replied, thus revealing an even greater increase of faith in Christ and his power. Because, this is interesting, they no longer call him son of David, but now they go to the next step up, Lord. So already their faith is in. The more Christ ignored them, the more it increased. And then finally he says to them, but do you believe? Yes, not son of David, yes, Lord. So he's actually is increasing even more their faith. A man's faith is nothing other than he himself opening the door of his soul and allowing God to enter in. 
Saint Nikolai, in one of his homilies, he, he wrote this, and I really, um, it was, it was well, I found it was wonderful. He says, God approaches man with his love, and God, out of his love, wants to do everything that he can that's good for man. But he waits for man's faith. And then he said, when God's love unites with man's faith, because God's love acts better on a person for their salvation according to their faith. Different that I said before, that someone can have no faith and God can heal them. God can heal them of a disease. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're healed of their spiritual sickness. It doesn't mean they're going to repent. So, yes, God can cure someone who has no faith, but that's not the point. The point is that God wants to cure someone of their spiritual sickness, in other words, to bring them to faith in him. And that can happen when the person has faith. So the man has faith, the person, God's love, joins together, and as St. Nikolai says, from this union, wonders are born. Great things happen when man's faith joins with God's love. And Jesus sternly warned them to the blind man, saying, See that no one knows it, but when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. Why did Christ warn them not to speak about this miracle? There are four reasons. One, Christ seeks no glory or praise from men. He doesn't need it. Two, to show what he does is out of compassion and love for mankind, not like magicians and sorcerers, servants of the devil, who hate and disdain people in their hearts and do what they do only to receive glory and praise from men, not to mention money. So when God does something, he does it out of love because he loves the soul of the person. He wants their salvation. These other people, these sorcerers, whatever they do, they do it, one, which is true, they do it for praise. They want everyone to find out because they get more business and they do it because they want the money. Three, to give an example to men that they must do every good work for God's sake and not out of vanity. God is saying here, that when you do do something good, whatever you do good, don't do it out of vainglory. Don't do it out of pride. Don't do it to show off. Number four, that they will be compelled to proclaim God's power, not out of personal vanity. Which when he says, don't go and tell people, don't go and tell people, he says here, it means out of vanity. Don't go and say, look, I'm, I used to be blind, but now I'm better. I'm special. I'm, I'm this or I'm that, which people do a lot. They become proud. Oh, look, God has done this to me. But no, he's saying, when you do, proclaim God's power. And not for the sake of praise, but for the glory of God. So we get confused, we say this, so that when they went and proclaimed it, as long as they're proclaiming to everyone in the correct spirit, it's okay. But a lot of times when something happens to us, like a miracle or whatever happens, we become proud. We don't look at it and say glory to God, which we hardly say, but what do we do? Glory to us. It is interesting to note that the news, that's why God doesn't give us miracles, because people can't handle it, like a child. You don't give a child a knife because it will cut himself. Too young, can't handle it. The same with the miracles, 
are like a knife for some people. And if God does too much to someone, they can cut themselves. In other words, they can lose their souls. And as I said to a lady last month, when she asked, I said, oh, but didn't the saints see dreams and then from those dreams miraculous icons were found, so why are you speaking against dreams and things? And I said, because a lot of those who did see those dreams were lost later. It was because of their pride. And that's why the saints prayed and said to God, I never want to see a dream. I don't want to see visions. I don't want to see any of those things because I could lose myself. Yes, there were some dreams, but that's exceptional. Who are we to, all of a sudden, to think that the mother of God's going to come in our dreams and, and uh, show herself to us and things like that and think that we're not going to be affected? Don't seek dreams. The saints speak strictly about that. Nothing. It is interesting to note that the news that spread about him in all that country was not to do with Christ's preaching and teaching in this case, but it was to do with the signs that he performed. Nevertheless, this brought them to some belief in him, while others to full belief, like the blind men themselves, the blind men themselves were approaching, if not, they got to the stage of saying that this is the Son of God. But others only saw him as a great man, a prophet, etc., etc. And, and it says they spread the news about him in all that country, the miracles. So it seems that people were very interested in miracles, not that interested in the word of God. There were people that were affected, but not too many. Number two, the ten lepers. Now it happened, and that's today as well, people are more interested in miracles than they are the word of God. And I'll speak about that later on. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers, who stood afar off, which we know about why they stand afar off, and they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. The explanation says, how did they know that Christ was able to help them when they had no contact with men because no one went near them? And the answer that the fathers say is someone must have given them the news while throwing some bread on them at the road, on the road that from far away people would, um, would do almsgiving, would, would feed them, or they used to live somewhere in, in valleys and things like that, and they used to lower down the food on ropes. And, you know, it depends where they were. There was leper colonies, and people would go and take food to them, maybe relatives, etc. So as they were lowering down the food or throwing some bread on the road, they would say to him, there's this great teacher... And he's healed some lepers. Obviously, that would interest them. That, that's about all that would interest them. The only thing they're interested in is to have some food to eat and that if they can get healed. Nothing else, whether who's the emperor, you know, who's the emperor at the time, what's the Roman Empire, that's no interest for them. Who's the governor of Judea, who's this, who's that, those had no interest. What interested them was to get some food and also that would be interesting, that there was a man who was able to heal lepers. So, hearing this, um, hearing that he was an almighty healer, they would have heard of specific cases of Christ's healing of lepers like themselves. They did not make supplication to him as to a mere man. 
but as to one greater than a man, for they called him master. Master is one who is not just a teacher, but a spiritual guide. Protector, guardian, which is not far from thinking of him as God. So these people were just about bordering on that, which is that's the whole purpose, that Christ is God. That's the, whoever believes in Christ will be saved. And they had not yet come to know of Christ's divinity. They didn't completely understand that this person is God himself. So when he saw them, he said to them, go show yourselves to the priests. And so it was as they went, they were cleansed. See again, the respect that Christ shows and says, go show yourself to the priest. Even though I'm God, and even though uh, the priests serve me, but I want to show to the Jews that I'm not against the priesthood, that I want you to go to the priests. But they were, but they were lepers. Why would they go to the priests for? Because obviously because they were going to be healed. So it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned with a loud voice, glorified God, and fell on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And get ready now for the knife. This is another knife for the Jews. And he was a Samaritan. Samaritans were kind of semi-pagans. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? Were there, not, were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? In other words, except for this non-Jew. And he said to them, Arise, go your way. So he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. We notice in the Bible there's a lot of references, as we're going to see soon, the Samaritan woman. Again, she, was not a, she wasn't a, a Jew. That in the Gospels... There are examples of non-Jews who have more faith than the Jews. And this is a great teaching that Christ is doing to show us not to have that pride even when we have the truth. Because they disdained, they had everyone as rubbish except anyone that wasn't a Jew for them was like, an animal. Of the ten lepers, the nine who were Israelites showed themselves to be ungrateful, while it was the Samaritan, an accursed foreigner, according to the Jews, who returned to voice his gratitude. The Samaritans were Assyrians, therefore, the Holy Fathers say, let no Gentile, let no pagan, let, you know, despair. And let no one descended from holy forebears boast. In other words, let not those who are children of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the words the Jews, let them not boast that only salvation is for them. The Jews were proud of being chosen by God and their knowledge of God that surpassed that of all other nations on earth. Because it was true. They had the fullness of the, not the but they had the truth to the measure that it was given by God in those times. But here is an example that shows their darkened minds and hardness of heart. An Assyrian, a pagan in other words, had a more enlightened mind and a nobler heart, a, a better heart, than the self 
glorifying Jews. Glorifying self glorifying means that they were saying, we've got the truth, we've got the truth. And that exists today even in the Orthodox Church, that there are people who say continually, we have the truth and the Catholics are this and the Muslims are this and the Buddhists are this, etc. But St. Nikolai is going to say something about that, which I think is coming up soon. Here it is. Sadly, this history is repeated in our day with the chosen and non-chosen. Today, some pagans have a more open mind and grateful heart towards God than very many Christians. Many Muslims and Buddhists, says St. Nikolai, can put many Christians to shame by their heartfelt prayers to God and their zeal and their enthusiasm, in other words, the intensity of their thankfulness to him. Uh, of course, I would be very careful to say that because people are going to say that I'm a heretic or something, so I use the, the, the fathers of the church so that way I'm covered. Even I still might get a rotten tomato, but that's the, that's the thing that today people don't want to hear that, just like the, the Jews at the time didn't want to hear that others had more faith. But St. Nicholas saying here that what's the point to be orthodox and have the truth if you don't have any faith? What's the point in being orthodox if you don't have any if our hearts are not full of thankfulness towards God when he gives us these things, but yet we do see it in some of the others. The Samaritan had indeed believed, as had the other nine lepers. Had they not believed in the Lord's power, they would not have cried out, Jesus, Master, because they all did it, and the other nine. They all said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. But what use was their faith? It did not help to bring them to faith and salvation that Christ is the Son of God. So we can see that miracles occurred, but the miracles did not always have a, an effect. And you might say, well, why did Christ heal them if he knew that they weren't going to do that? Well, when people get healed, they're not just getting healed for themselves, but they're getting healed for others to see as well. It helps others. When people get punished, it's not just because they're being punished, but it helps others who see that person being punished. And not only that, if people learn from that person's punishment, then his punishment in the next life will be less because from his punishment, people learnt and people changed their ways. We didn't think of that, did we? We only say, oh, look at him, look how bad that person is. God must, he must be really bad for God to allow such a thing to happen. But, but we don't know that that person might be, is being helped, one, that he's being punished, but as well that other people are saying, oh, look what happened to him because he stole or whatever, or he went to a magician and now look at him now, he's, he's lost his family or whatever. And people learn from that and go, oh, that's because he did that and that. I better not do that. So those people benefit, and that person benefits as well because from his suffering, people are changing their lives. So don't always think, see, this is what I'm saying. We don't know exactly how God works. Now, Nicodemus. Now we're going to see another person here. Now he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, and many believed in his name. Get ready for this. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did, not the words that he said. In this case here, many believed in Christ 
because of the miracles that he did. Remember I said that before? Some believe from miracles, some believe from the word, some believe from both. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. What does that mean? It seems a little bit negative to me. It's, in other words, he's saying that Christ didn't really give himself to those people much. Which people? The people who believed in him because of miracles. So there seems to be a bit of a negativity with those who come to faith from miracles, perhaps. Let's see what the explanation says. While Jesus was in Jerusalem during the feast, some of the people seemed to believe in his name. But their faith was not firm, say the Holy Fathers. For a short while, they regarded him as a divinely inspired man, but not as God. Soon, they even lost that weak faith that they had. The weakness of their faith is made clear by the words that follow. But Jesus did not commit himself to them, nor did he commit all his teachings to them, as he did to those who truly believed. For he searched their hearts and knew what lay hidden in there. And what lay hidden? What lay hidden was a heart that was shallow. A heart that was dazzled by some miracles. And they say, oh, I believe now. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, I'll say it the Greek way, our member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. So, Saint, so, this, so this man Nicodemus, a Jew, he says, we know you're a teacher from God, for no man could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. He refers to the miraculous signs that Christ is from God because Christ did miracles. Explanation. Nicodemus's faith was a little stronger than the others, but not by much. Nevertheless, he did not believe as he should have, for his faith was limited by the Jewish weakness of understanding things in a very shallow and carnal manner. He was not thinking in a spiritual way. The Jews had lost a lot of their spirituality because they were too much into externals, washing of hands and do nothing on the Sabbath. And that's why they said to Christ, look, he healed on the Sabbath, he can't be from God. And then Christ said, but if your cow or whatever, your ox falls into the ditch, wouldn't you get him out on the Sabbath? Don't you give water to your animals on the Sabbath? So what's worth more, your animals or a person who's been healed on the Sabbath? In other words, he was saying hypocrites. That's how the Jewish religion had become. Like today in Orthodoxy, it's become for a lot external, just a few little things. Some keep a bit of fasts, some come to church, some commune a few times a year, some might do a few pharisaical prayers. That's about it. This is a problem which happens, and in the Jewish times, and now as well. The devil loves when people lead a church life, a religious life, one can say, which is superficial. He burns when people lead a life, an inner spiritual life. An inner spiritual life. When the lady asked last month, what is spiritual life? And I said, 
a person who cultivates repentance and humility. These Pharisees didn't even know what the word repentance means. And today a lot of people don't know what repentance means because people aren't really worried about repentance. All they care about is just keeping a couple of external things. Have a couple of icons at home. That's about it. But not really having the zeal to search, to read, to come closer to God. And that's how the Jews were there, and that's how a lot of Orthodox Christians are today. But of course we can change that by, by struggling more. So that's, how so that's how Nicodemus was. He came to Jesus by night out of fear of the Jews. He didn't go and see him in the day because he didn't want the Jews to see him because the Jews said whoever goes to him, they will be you know, condemned or punished or whatever. And addressed the Lord as merely a human teacher. This is how Nicodemus declares his faith. What does he say? He said, For no man could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. Do you see how he views Jesus as only a man, a teacher, a prophet beloved by God? But the Lord does not rebuke him for this, nor does he ask him, If I'm a teacher sent by God, why do you come to me secretly by night? When I read that, I just, it took me a few days to finally understand I didn't understand what that was and because I didn't understand I was going to delete it because I don't like to explain things that I don't understand because then people ask me questions I'm going to get confused but then I put it back in because I finally understood what the Holy Father is saying I think it was Saint Theophilact he said he's saying here that Christ didn't say to him if I'm a teacher if I'm a prophet of God if I'm from God as you believe I am because I do these miracles, then why are you coming at night? Why aren't you open about it? If I'm from God, what do you care what other people say? He could have said that. Rather, the Lord gladly converses with him about the exalted mysteries of God. Why does he talk to him? But he doesn't talk to the other Jews where he said he didn't trust them because Nicodemus had something there. He had a little there was something in his heart. And when God sees even a little bit in, their, in, in a person's heart, he goes to them to help them. If he sees nothing, he leaves the person alone so as not to make them worse, which is the theme of uh, next month's talk. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's what he said. If someone's not born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So the explanation says, Nicodemus did not comprehend how great was Christ, and thought he was merely a teacher inspired by God. Therefore, Christ explains, quote, it's like he's saying, you naturally have such a conception of me for you have not been born from above. That is, you have not yet undergone spiritual birth from God, but hold on to your carnal outlook, to your unspiritual way of thinking. Your knowledge of me is not spiritual, but material and human. That's, in a way, what Christ is saying to him. He says, More surely I say to you, unless one is born, unless you become spiritual, you will not see me as God, but you will see me only as a teacher because I did some miracles. That's what he means by that. See, it was straight after what he just said before, where, the, where, where Nicodemus says, 
uh, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who has come from God, for no man could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. So Christ saying, that's not what I'm here for. I'm here for you to see me as God, because salvation comes when one acknowledges Christ as God. So what does he say? He says, Assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, But how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? In other words, what's, what's he going to go back in his mother and be born again? That's how, see what I mean? His mind was so limited. Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Christ is trying to bring him to understand things spiritually. But, say, but Nicodemus is, not, is very limited. Nicodemus is astounded by these words which go beyond all human teaching. He had never heard these things before. And asks with the weakness characteristic of human nature. In other words, just a person who's on a human level, not spiritual. He says to Christ, how can this be? This is a sure sign of disbelief. He's, it's, it is the sceptic, like the doubter, who says, why this and how's that? You know, when you see people, when you, say, when you talk to them about something spiritual, they go, how? Why? How can that be? I don't understand. That seems this, that seems that. People all the time with doubt and things like that. Christ's words appear ridiculous to Nicodemus because he was not thinking of spiritual birth, but birth from his mother's womb. Christ is speaking about spiritual birth, which comes when someone receives the grace of the Holy Spirit. But Nicodemus thought that he meant that he's got to climb into his mum's belly button and then come back out. So then it says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again, Christ says, and then he says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, I think the third time now, how can these things be? Still going. Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Still thinking in the feeble, earthbound manner, in other words, in a really limited way like the Jews of the time, Nicodemus asks again, how can these things be? The Lord explains that this question stems from ignorance. The part here was interesting. It said, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. Would you like, when I read it, I go, what does that mean? Are you interested to know what it means? What does that mean? Well, the answer is I don't know. Uh, I, I, read a, I read the explanation and the explanation was a bit too much for me at the time. And I said to myself, well, I don't have to, I don't have to uh, know everything. And I, and I said to myself, I will, I will explain that to the people. I will just say that there is so much in the Bible and the more personally that I read, the more I see I don't know. And we don't have to know everything, which is a sign of pride, which is what these books explain about how to read the Holy Fathers and the Bible. You don't have to know everything. That's, you, know, you, you can go to university if you're going to study, if you've got some intelligence, you go and study a certain thing, you can know everything about that topic. 
if possible, one, one can say. Or you might do a thesis, like a doctorate, and you might study some trivial matter like um, um, the reproduction of um, some way out thing in Africa or something, and then you get a doctorate, and they'd say, this person is a, is, a, is a doctor of this, and he knows everything about that topic. To me, it's boring. But in the spiritual life, you can't know everything. Therefore, Nicodemus was influenced by the signs and he recognised in the Lord only a teacher sent by God, which still is something compared to the scribes and the Pharisees that were so evil that they weren't even moved by the signs. For them, they were saying, oh, he's, the de- he's from the demons, he's doing miracles, like we said last month, he's doing these miracles from the demons. Oh, look, he, that someone said, look, he just, he just um, expelled the demon out of that boy. They said, no, no, the devil helped him to get the demon out of the boy. And everything else that they distorted. But this, for Christ, is still acceptable because he can work with that. As for the others who had changed because of the signs, he says that he didn't give them that... Um, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and he had no need that anyone should testify to men for he knew what was in man. He didn't commit himself. He didn't preach to them and didn't do much in front of them because in their heart they weren't looking for salvation. They weren't looking for the truth. St. Nicodemus, even though what he was saying was stupid in one way, but he was still saying, but how, why? At least he was inquiring and he was trying, but he was limited because of his um, spiritual state. But later on, of course, he became a great saint of the Orthodox Church. There was two examples of those who were influenced by the signs. The first one was the healing of the two blind men, how people were influenced by the signs, but not in the word. The second one was the ten lepers. Again, how people were, or the nine of them, weren't even, didn't even come back to even, and they were involved in the miracle. And others around, they were, they were astounded but didn't see Christ as God. But they had some level of faith. But more they were astounded by the miracles, not by his word. And now Nicodemus is completely just focused on the miracles and couldn't penetrate into the word of God. Now we go on to three examples of those influenced by the word. Apostle Peter. Let's see his example. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always, the Pharisees. Remember that last time about the multiplication of the bread? And after Christ did the miracle, and then some of the Jews went up to him and said, um, they just were running after him. And Christ said, you're only coming because you saw me do the miracle of the bread. Don't seek the things of bread. Because bread is bread. And when, if, even if I give you more bread, at the end, you're still going to get hungry. and you're going to want... But look for spiritual things. And let's let's have a look here. Then they said to him, the Jews, Lord, give us this bread always. Multiply bread continually for us, like you did that with the five loaves and the seven loaves. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. That's, That's spiritual. I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me will never get hungry. 
not physically, spiritually. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. See, today, people are spiritually hungry and thirsty. Incredibly. And people are very depressed. And, really, and a lot of the depression, not all of it, some of it's physical from physical reasons, but, but the majority of depression comes from souls that are starving for God and they're empty. So even, and they have a, this thing, a hunger, and they believe that this hunger is sex or drugs or going out, alcohol, glory, education, and they're seeking all these things, thinking that that's going to satisfy them. But at the end of the day, they get all those things and they're still hungry spiritually. They're still depressed. And that's why the suicide rate's so high. But Christ is saying, I am the bread of life and whoever comes to me will never be hungry and will not thirst. Everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. See, he's taken them to the spiritual level. Everlasting life. That's it. Everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Then the Jews began to quarrel among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Explanation. When the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, heard this that that the flesh of the Lord is food, they scoffed. They just, ah, oh. they made fun, they laughed, they mocked, they rejected, they disdained, whatever. How can this be, they said. Then many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? So even his own disciples were troubled by this teaching. This is too much. What's he saying? He's saying he's going to give us his flesh to eat and give us his blood to drink. And actually, is this in this part? Or maybe another part. They actually thought that he was trying to make them cannibals. Then when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, because the disciples were embarrassed, they just said, hmm, this is too much to themselves. They didn't say it out of respect because they were close to him. There's, there's all different. There's, there's the people... Then there's his disciples, but then even above his disciples were the apostles. So there was like three groups, what one can say. He said to them, does this offend you? From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. They, they, they left, they couldn't take it. Then Jesus said to the twelve now, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him on behalf of the twelve, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we believe and we are sure that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Theophilus says Peter can affirm that, that Christ has the words of eternal life because in that Bible section it says, just a little bit further back, it says that Christ said, um, everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So St. Peter heard that, and the apostles heard that. They heard that part. 
then comes all these things about eating bodies and drinking blood, etc. And then St. Peter, on behalf of us, said, okay, this part a lot of people were scandalised with, but it says he, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The holy apostle Peter was an eyewitness of many miracles of Christ. He was there at the multiplication of the five loaves and the feeding of that, and he saw all Christ's miracles. But the apostle Peter and, and the apostles with him confess Christ as the Son of God, but don't mention his miracles. What did, they, what did he mention? You have the words of eternal life. Not like Nicodemus, you are from God because you did miracles. But he, he says here, you have the words of eternal life. Didn't mention the miracles at all. While on the other hand, Nicodemus, the ten lepers, the two blind men, and those who witnessed Christ's miracles focused only on the signs and wonders, recognising Christ only as a teacher, as a healer, as a prophet. So those who saw signs got to the level of saying that Christ is the teacher, the healer, the prophet. Some even rejected him even after they had miracles done on them. Here, the Apostle Peter, on the words, says, you have the words of eternal life. Where would we go? But how come St. Peter didn't become didn't get scandalised from the body and blood. And why did Christ say such things? In the, in the first, it's like he's provoking people. In a way, doesn't Christ know as God that if he says to people, you have to eat my body and drink my blood, that people are going to get scandalised and say, we can't take this. Why did he do that? See, this is where we are limited in our minds and we think that the church has to say things 100% understandable. Yes, in universities, that's how it is. It's understandable. But not in the matters of faith. Because the word of God is so powerful that even if something sounds strange to us, in our hearts something else is happening which says there's truth here. There's truth in what is being said. Maybe I don't understand. Maybe the apostle said, I don't, maybe I don't understand the body and blood, but it doesn't matter. Because what I know is that Christ has the words of eternal life. In him there is salvation and the rest will come. But that's interesting, isn't it? That he did not mention the miracles and his confession of Christ as God directly came from the words, not from the signs and miracles like the others who saw signs and miracles and only a few got to the point and actually interesting it was the centurion who wasn't even a jew who actually said that christ is god and the leper one of them so that was an interesting point now there's another example now behold two of them were traveling that same day to a village called emmaus i think i'd say it's greek i don't know how you say it in english which was seven miles from jerusalem this was after christ's christ died and resurrected, and they talked together of all the things which just happened about Christ's crucifixion, etc. So it was while they conversed and reasoned as they were walking, then Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. And he said to them, What are you talking about? 
What kind of conversation is that that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and have you not known the things which have happened there in these days? So the explanation says, what does he mean by that? He's trying to say to Christ, who he thought was a stranger, are you the only person living in Jerusalem that doesn't know what happened? Or are you from another region, perhaps? How can you not know what happened? And he said to them, what things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God. Note those words. Jesus, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God. They still had not got to the proper level. And all the people and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. So the explanation says, Do you see how little understanding they had of the Lord? They called him a prophet, like Elijah or Joshua or Moses, mighty in deed and word. So these two apostles are saying, Yes, he did miracles and he spoke great words, like a prophet. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this today is the third day since these things happened. So they said, we were hoping that he's going to redeem Israel. The explanation is coming for that. As ones who hopes had been crushed, they say we had hoped that he would save others. But look, he did not even save himself. So by saying, the way they were speaking is if they're saying, We were hoping that this man, this prophet, was going to save Israel from the Romans. They're going to free the Jews from the Roman oppression because the Romans were ruling the country. But he didn't even save himself because the Romans killed him. They were so lacking in courage and faith that they, in effect, spoke the same words as did the malefactors on the cross. Remember those people on the cross who said, oh, he saved others, he cannot save himself. So these apostles of Christ were speaking in a similar way, but not obviously in the same evil intent, but it's similar. Because those evil ones at the cross were saying, look, let's see if he can come down from the cross. He saved others, so they acknowledged that he saved. Let's, Let's see if he can save himself. These people are saying, we thought he was going to save the Jews from the Romans, but he didn't even save himself and he was killed by the Romans. This is why the Lord calls them fools and slow in heart to believe. So let's explain this, this um, redeem. We have said in various places that the people expected incorrectly that Christ would be their saviour and redeemer from the temporal afflictions that beset them, that is, from the slavery to the Romans. They looked at Christ not as a messiah who will grant salvation, but as a Messiah who's going to become king of Israel because they lost their kings for quite a while and the Jews' mentality was that the Christ will come not as a spiritual person but as a king like David and he's going to throw out the the Romans. We have said, yes, so... And they hoped that he would rule as king over an earthly kingdom. This is why they say here, we were hoping that he would redeem Israel from the Gentile Romans, yet he did not even escape from their unjust sentence against him. 
and then they continue on now. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive, and certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So now they're saying that other people said that they've seen him, that he rose from the dead. So then the explanation says they say these things as if confused because they're saying, because the person who's writing this says, it seems to me that they are men torn between faith and disbelief, not certain of either one. But when they say today is the third day, they speak like men who are on the edge of recalling Christ's words to them on the third day I'll rise again because they remember, they're starting to remember didn't Christ, when he was with us, say, on the third day I will rise? And now they're saying, and these women, because they said three days later, they're saying that they saw him. So they're kind of starting to think, maybe he has risen from the dead, like he said he was. But as I said, they're moving from faith to unbelief. They're a bit in the, in the middle there. And when they... And when they say that the women astonished us, this indicates that their disbelief has been shaken. Carefully examining the words, we see that they are full of human indecision and doubt. They are the words of men, bewildered and confused by the miracle of the resurrection. They, were, uh, they hadn't come properly to the faith in the resurrection. Then the Bible goes on. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, in all that the prophets have spoken. So Christ calls them fools. Should not the Christ have suffered these things and enter into his glory? And then, beginning from Moses and all the prophets, Christ explained to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Like I said before, in the Old Testament, which the Jews of today read, it is written in there from the books of Moses and the prophets about him. Exactly everything that happened to him it's all in there, and they know that. What are, what are these books? They're the books like um, the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they're books in the Old Testament. And the writings of the prophets are texts foretelling the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. So what Christ was doing, as he was walking along the road, he didn't show who he was because he didn't want to, and he was talking to them, remember what the books of Moses say? Do you remember what the prophet said? And he was teaching them everything to do about the Christ rising from the dead, etc. Then, then they drew near to the village where they were going and he indicated that he would have gone farther. So Christ says, I'm going to continue my journey. But they said, stay, abide with us, for it is towards evening and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them and he took bread, blessed and broke, and he gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished from their sight straight away. And they said to one another, this is interesting, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up at very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord is risen indeed. That's where we get that Christ is risen, truly is risen, or the Lord is risen indeed. 
Yes, he has risen and has appeared to Simon as well, like others. And they told about the things that happened to them on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Blessed Theophilus says here, because they were limited in their understanding of Christ, because they suffered from a sickness of doubt, the Lord calls them foolish and slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. As Jews, they should have known those books. Indeed, it may happen that a man believes only in part and not in full. In this case, these people believe, but a little bit, not fully. Fully in what? What, what? When we say full, full, that Christ is the Son of God, that he rose from the dead. Part is that he was a prophet, great in word and deed. That's how they spoke about him. So that's, that's not the proper belief. That's only part. Such a man does not have perfect faith, but only partial faith. But since you are fools and slow to understand, it's it as if Christ is saying, since you are fools and slow to I will lift up your minds and make you to think more quickly and sharply. That's why he taught them. Christ says, slow to understand, because if they had been truly mindless, in other words, if they had been completely uh, without being able to be taught at all, he wouldn't have spoken to them. So he said, you're foolish and you are slow to understand, but even that slowness, I will come and talk to you and I will help you. If they were foolish and stubborn, then he wouldn't have done that. See, see this is very important, the words. So it says here... Um, uh, o foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. But not only that, the fact that he also taught them and he was before his death, crucifixion and the miracles that he did, etc., etc., all these things that happened. He says, you foolish. However, there was something there. So when we see people that lack faith and we say, oh, they don't believe properly, Remember that God can still work with those people as long as they've got something in their heart where they want to learn. As for those that don't want to learn, God can't do anything. So we shouldn't judge because we can think that someone doesn't believe properly, but God can work with those people like he did with them. See? Oh, what things? The things about Christ. He was a great prophet, you know, in word and deed. See? That, was very, that wasn't what Christ is. Christ's not a prophet. Christ is God. But, but Christ still worked with them. Now, this is the, I'm going to come to the part now. Their hearts burned within them with the fire of the Lord's words, like Apostle Peter. Where should we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the Son of God from the words. And here we see these two apostles, after Christ opened the Scriptures and spoke to them, they said, didn't our hearts burn within us with the fire of God's grace. That's what, that, that's what it means. And that as he spoke to them, the conviction burned within them that what he said was true. So what the fathers here say, St. Nicodemus, St. Ignatius mentioned of in the Signs and Miracles, he says, they did not say anything about the amazing miracle that he just vanished from their sight. Like they're, they're eating together and all of a sudden Christ disappeared. 
They didn't mention that. They turned all their attention to the action of the word. They turned all their attention to Christ's teaching. The word of God had an effect on the souls of the listeners because they sensed its divine power. They sensed the grace of God that came from those words. So we have two examples here of people who did not speak about the miracles but just focused on the word of God and through these words came to belief in Christ as God while the ones, a lot of them, the ones who saw miracles were not very stable. Well, that's a shame. We can't do the Samaritan woman. Even though that was maybe another time. See, a lot of times I wouldn't have to read the whole Bible and then the whole Bible passage and explain it because if, you, if a lot of you people read, then you would know and then I could speak about it in a quicker way and say, do you remember the Samaritan woman when she went to the well, and etc., etc. But a lot of times people haven't read much. They don't, they, they don't know. And that Samaritan explanation is great. It's such a great thing. Anyway, the basic thing of the Samaritan woman is that Christ told her, he said to her, call your husband. And she said, I have no husband. He goes, yes, I know, you've had five and the one you've got is not your husband. And then she ran to the other Samaritans. Remember, these people weren't Jews. They They believed only in the first five books of Moses. And they mixed their religion with pagans. So the Jews looked at them as, as basically unbelievers, as pagans. So she ran to the, to the town and said to the people, look, this man told me about myself. Maybe he's the Messiah. And then they came out. And what it's saying there is that they believed in him from his words, not from any miracles. She might have had a little bit of a miracle where he knew that she wasn't married. But that's about it. But they believed purely on, on his words. And Blessed Theophilac says that the Samaritan woman shows herself to be wiser than Nicodemus, to whom the Lord gave a much lengthier explanation. To the Samaritan woman he spoke shorter, but to the um, and she believed. But to Nicodemus he went into more explanation and he kept on saying how can these things be but why does he reveal himself to the Samaritan woman and not to the Jews who kept on saying tell us if you are the Christ because the Jews kept on saying are you the Christ are you the Christ he never he never told them but to this woman he did say I whom speaking to you I'm he I am the Messiah why that he said nothing to the Jews because the purpose of their questions was not to learn but to have as many accusations as possible to bring against him. They were going with evil intent. The Lord reveals himself to this woman because she is honest and questions him with a sincere intent. She desired simply to know the truth. What I was saying before, God loves those who seek the truth. This is clear from what follows because as soon as she heard the words from Christ, she ran to the people and she brought them into the faith. 
Saint Theophilac says that this woman was a person who was searching, inquiring, probing. In other words, she was asking questions she wanted to learn. And this is such a great thing. And when someone wants to learn, God opens up so much to them. But if someone doesn't want to learn, I don't think even the miracles do much. The Samaritans believed because of the woman's words and therefore showing their faith by their works, they begged him to stay with them. They were so moved by Christ's teaching, they said, stay with us. But he was not persuaded to do so and stayed there only two days, during which time many more believed because of his teaching. The evangelist does not need to tell us the particular words of Christ's marvellous teaching, of what he said to the other Samaritans. He doesn't say, it's not necessary. He says it's merely enough to say that his words were so powerful that these people sensed their divine power. And from, those, from, from that, it says he, um, by his mere presence among the Samaritans, the Lord is also teaching something very deep. And this is now, we're coming to it, that without any sign or miracle, because the Samaritans, apart from the woman who saw a little bit, they saw not one miracle. And the Samaritans believed and begged him to live with them. But after receiving 10,000 signs and miracles, the Jews drove him away, for a man's enemies will be those of his own household. See how quickly the multitude outdid the woman who taught them. They did not call him prophet. They didn't say he's a prophet, the Samaritans. They didn't say that he's saviour of Israel, is going to save us from the um, Romans. But they said he's the saviour of the world. And that's why... It's that, that, that beautiful section at the end where it says, um, And many more believed because of his own word. They said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the saviour of the world. Not the miracles, didn't mention miracles, that just from listening to his teaching, they confess and say, we know that he is the saviour of the world. And these are the Samaritans who were confused with pagans. They used to have idols and things like that. And the Jews rejected him. See how quickly the multitude outdid the woman. This is the saviour, the only real saviour of all mankind. Many have come to save, lawgivers, prophets, angels, etc. But he is the true saviour. The Galileans, however, the Jews, the, the Galilean Jews, believed in the Lord when he came to Galilee on this occasion, having seen the signs which he did among them and in Jerusalem. So the Galileans, the Jews, did believe to a certain extent, but according to the signs that they saw and the miracles. But the Samaritans are most praiseworthy, are more praiseworthy, sorry, for they believed in him without the benefit of any signs, simply accepting the word, woman's testimony and Christ's teaching. So this shows us what? That Christ praises those who come to him through his word more than those who come through miracles. Because... In here.
Let's see what I mean by that. Therefore many of the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was division among the people because of him. Uh, and, and that division can be good. It means that people are thinking, is he, is he the Christ? Is he a prophet? Is he a teacher? What is he? At least they're at that level of asking. While the Jews, like a lot of the ones that were evil, said he's nothing. He's an imposter. He's possessed. He's this, he's that. Let's look at the explanation. Although the rulers, burning with envy, continued to oppose the, Lord's fear, the Lord fiercely, many of the people affected by the power of his speech, did you hear that? By the power of his speech, were won over and confessed that this is the prophet, while others said this is the Christ. There was a division among the people, but not among the rulers, who with one mind refused to accept him as the Christ completely. Nothing. See, therefore many from the crowd, when they heard his teaching, said, he's a prophet, he's a cross. Now, some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Some of the Pharisees were less evil-minded and only argued against Christ, which I said before. Okay, they weren't sure. Others, more shameless, wanted to lay hands on him, but were invisibly restrained by divine power. They wanted to rip him apart. But, but there was a, some power did not allow them to do that. Yet, even this miracle did not soften their hearts. They should have been because we want to rip him apart. We want to destroy him, but there's a power not allowing us. Where's this power from? It's from God. Therefore, this person is not just a human. He's God. But that didn't soften them. It did, couldn't bring them to because of their, the evil that was in them was so intense. Then the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, because the, the Pharisees sent some officers of the temple, I'm not sure who they were, some type of, they weren't Romans, they, were, they worked for the Jews. And he, they said, go and get him, bring him here. So when, he, when they came back, the Pharisees said to them, why have you not brought him? And the officers answered, listen to this one, no man ever spoke like this man. Not no man has done miracles like this man. No man ever spoke like this man. How do the officers who were sent to Jesus to arrest him answer the Pharisees' question? They answered him honestly and candidly, just openly. The Pharisees, who supposedly were wiser and more learned in the law and had witnessed the Lord's miracles, raged against him. They had a mania against him. Like criminals, they snarled. Why have you not brought him here? But the good-hearted officers, having witnessed no miracles, were won over by the Lord's teaching alone. Only by the teaching, not by miracles. That it was Christ's teaching which is greater than any miracle. That's the, that's the answer to the theme tonight. Christ's teaching is greater than the miracles. That persuaded them is clear from their answer to the Pharisees. They did not say, never did a man work wonders like this man, but rather they said, no man ever spoke like this man. How quick they were to grasp his words of salvation. One must admire 
not only their swift comprehension, how they worked it out quickly, but also their boldness, the way they spoke back to the Pharisees, who are supposed to be their, their bosses, one can say. Being servants under orders, they didn't report what their rulers wanted to hear. They wanted, they wanted them to say, he's a bad person, he's evil, he's a deceiver. But they didn't say that to them. They said, no man ever spoke like this. Instead, they witnessed to the truth. Then the Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of, or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is a curse. So the, now the Jews are saying, those who don't know the law, we know the law, they're saying, but those who don't, they're all cursed. You're with me, you're with us, they're saying to the officers. You're not cursed like the people. You should know better. You're not deceived like the others. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. And the Bible goes on, Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our Lord judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And the, and the explanation said, The Pharisees attempt to soothe this, the, the servants Asking meekly, are you also deceived? You're not trying to, trying to bring them in. They feared that those two in the end will break with them and follow Christ. For people to follow Christ and not follow them. So they employ flattery. Are even you deceived who are wiser than the others? You're with us. You can't be deceived. And they have always stood by us. You've always stood by us, the masters of the law. So how weak is the argument they used to make their case? Have any of the rulers believed in him? And that's why in the Bible, straight after that, they said, look here what it says, it says, um, In truth, it is not Christ who deserves condemnation, but the unbelieving Pharisees. They call the multitude cursed for believing, while they themselves deserve millions of curses for their lack of faith and for leading others astray. Why does the evangelist mention straight away Nicodemus? It says Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and was one of them. And the answer says, it, it says to prove the rulers to be liars because they just said, have any of the rulers of Jerusalem believed in him? Here is one of their own who believed in him, Nicodemus. Maybe not properly, but still, because they were saying no one's believed in him. None of the rulers of, of the, have believed in him. Nicodemus has. And then he spoke up, Nicodemus spoke up and said, how can you condemn someone without having properly examined his situation? Conclusion, worthy of sympathy are those who reject the word of God and who seek confirmation from miracles. This need is due to carnal mindedness. In other words, when someone seeks miracles to confirm, it comes from ignorance, sin, a lack of exercise in the study of the law of God. When someone studies the law of God, they'll feel the power, and that's higher than any miracle that they're going to see. An inability of the soul to feel the Holy Spirit is really, really woeful. When someone does not feel the presence of the grace of God in the word of God. To perceive the presence of the... Oh, there it is. To perceive the presence of the Holy Spirit in the word of God. It is important to note that those who believed 
on account of signs. Okay, now we're going to see how, how the fathers look at those who believe from miracles and those who believe from the word. And this is what they say. Those who believed on account of signs and miracles belong to a group of weak believers in Christ. When they were offered a deep, holy and spiritual teaching, then many of them understood it according to their own interpretation, distorted it, and many of them fell away. Those who came to Christ through miracles fell away. And I tell you now, as Father at the back I'm sure would know, Father Nicholas, that those people who see miracles and come to the church and begin to believe, they quickly disappear. They are very weak of faith. Not all of them, and some of them, as long as they see, say someone saw a miracle, and then from that began to struggle, study the word of God, begins to pray. Yes, that's okay. We see that example with the apostles. But when a person comes and he bases his spiritual life on a miracle, personally for me, when a person speaks to me and goes, Oh, Father, I am orthodox and I believe, and I saw this miracle, and I go, Oh, no. And when they start speaking like that, and I kind of become uh, scared because I know that those people usually become the worst. They actually become the worst. They become very, very... uh, A lot of them go crazy at the end because their, their whole faith is based wrongly. Miracles... If we did see miracles, is the purpose of them is to say to us that that Christianity, that Christ is the truth, and now it's time to study the Word of God, to pray, to struggle with the passions, and try to apply the commandments that God has given us through His Word, not to base our spiritual life. I know people that have seen miracles, they don't even read the Bible, and all they do is they talk about miracles and look for miracles, and that's a miracle, that's a miracle, that's a miracle, and those people become quite off. The people that have done the worst damage to me as a priest are those people. That's why I said to you before, I get scared. And what I do with them is I try to help them to get away from that spirit of this miracle mania and say to them... Study the word of God, struggle, etc. If they don't, slowly, slowly, I try to get rid of them. Isn't that horrible? Well, I know why. Because those people become quite dangerous. You pray for them and that's it. But you can't cultivate that spirit. St. John Chrysostom says, now we're going to hear the words and finish off on the words of the great St. John Chrysostom. Chrysostom, Greek word, Chrysostoma, which means golden mouth. Because when he spoke, he spoke the words of God because the mouth of St. John Chrysostom was the, was the, was, um, the words of St. Paul. The words of St. Paul were the words of Christ. Because remember, when St. John Chrysostom, as the bishop, he used to write every night, every day, he used to write, that's why we have so many volumes of his work, and he was waiting for a man to come to visit him. So, when, so what would happen was that night after night, about four nights passed, and the man hadn't come. And then St John Chrysostom said to his uh, uh, servant there, Proclus, I think, if I remember right, who later on became Patriot of Constantinople, he said to him, I've been waiting for this man to come. Where is he? He goes, 
he's, he, he's come. He's come four days in a row. He goes, so why didn't you come and tell me? He goes, because every time I looked through the door, I saw this man with you. And he goes, which, there was no man with you. He goes, who, who, which man? He goes, the man was with you. While you were riding, he was whispering in your ear and he was talking to you. And St. John Chrysostom says there was no man. How did this man look? And then there was an icon. He goes, he looked like him, which was St. Paul. So St. Paul invisibly was there inspiring St. John Chrysostom to write what he wrote. Why, St. John Chrysostom says, why some say are there no signs and miracles today? My answer to, th to that is, listen with special attention, because the question asked here, I hear from many and often and always. St. John Chrysostom saying, even in his times, and he was 4th century, he died in 405, around there, fifth, beginning of the 5th century, and he says he also heard these words from people. Why are there miracles like there was of old? Why, at that time, all who accepted baptism started to speak in foreign tongues back in the days of the apostles? They used to speak tongues, other languages. And now that doesn't happen anymore. Why now is the grace of miracles taken away from men? God accomplishes this not to subject us to dishonour, but to give us even greater honour. So St. John Chrysostom is saying that God doesn't give us miracles because he wants to honour us more. Doesn't that sound strange? Wouldn't he honour us more by doing miracles? In what manner? St. John asks. I will explain. People of those times were slower of mind. They were dense. As I put that in. As they, because some people don't understand, so you've got to use words that, are, that people understand. People say, oh, slower of mind. What does that mean? Slower of mind means that they were dense spiritually. They just couldn't understand spiritual matters. As they were just turned away from the idols. Because in those days, as you know, the Romans believed in idols. And they were completely with the idols and they turned away. Their minds were carnal and dull. They were immersed in the material and given over to it. They could not realise the existence of immaterial gifts. In other words, they couldn't understand the spiritual gifts which are unseen. And now I add to that, which spiritual gifts? Forgiveness of sins, spiritual rebirth, resurrection and life eternal. They couldn't understand those things because they were too slow. In, their minds were darkened and their hearts were hard. Now we continue on with St. John's words. Neither did they know the meaning of spiritual grace. That all is accepted by faith alone. And for this reason, they were given signs. They were given, in other words, miracles. Of the spiritual gifts, some are unseen and are accepted only by faith. Others are combined, in other words, joined, with some sign. Where it says... Subject to the senses, in other words, that God would give a miracle so that people use their senses to see it. For the arousal of belief in the unbelieving people. In other words, for those who are unbelievers, God would do these miracles that were obvious to bring them to faith. For example, St. John says, the remission of sins is a spiritual gift and it is unseen. We do not see it by our bodily eyes how our sins are being cleansed. See how we can understand this better now because we 
read the paralytic and the explanations of the father. So uh, it's just wonderful that basically this is a summary of what we said today. For example, the forgiveness of sins is a spiritual gift. It can't be seen. We do not see with our bodily eyes how sins are being cleansed. The soul is being cleansed, but the soul is invisible to the eyes of the body. And thus, the cleansing of sins is a spiritual gift which cannot be seen by the eyes of the body. The ability to speak in foreign tongues, although part of the action of the Spirit, serves with it as a sign subject to the senses and thus can be easily observed by the unbelievers. In other words, he's saying, but when someone speaks with tongues, people can see that. So in those days, those who were given the Holy Spirit spoke with tongues, meaning they spoke languages so they can be able to preach because the apostles who went and spread Christianity all the world only spoke Aramaic and Greek. But who's going to go and enlighten the Chinese? Who's going to go and speak to these people? So God gave them the gift of the, this gift of tongues so they can go and preach. And thus can be easily observed by the unbelievers. An unseen action which is accomplished in the soul become seen and is shown by means of external language. So then people say, oh, this is, this is what the Holy Spirit is. Look at this. The Holy Spirit is doing such a miracle. These people can speak language that they don't even know. For this same reason, Paul says, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man for the profit of all. And thus, now St. John Christum says, and thus I do not have need of signs. St. John saying, I himself don't need signs. I don't need miracles. And he asks the question, why is it? Because I have come to believe in the grace of God without signs and miracles. An unbeliever is in need of proof. But I am a believer and have no need whatsoever in proof or a sign or a miracle to say, I don't need that. Although I do not speak in tongues, but I know that I am cleansed of sin. Because an Orthodox Christian, when he, if he's leading a spiritual life, can feel, can sense the sins are forgiven. They feel the freedom that they receive. They feel the grace that they receive when they confess to an Orthodox priest. The former did not believe, that means the pagans and all that, did not believe until they saw a miracle. Signs were given to them as proof of faith, which they were accepting at the time. And so signs were given not to believers, but to the unbelieving, so that they would be made believers. In the words of the apostle, this is from St. Paul's words, which is in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, line 22, which is a wonderful thing to end off with. St. Paul says, for a sign, in other words, for miracles, for a sign is not for those who believe, but for unbelievers. And that's St. John Chrysostom's words, that signs are for unbelievers. The fact that we don't see miracles continually is an honour God gives because he says, why do you need it? You already believe. You have my word. You have the Holy Fathers. You've got the church. You've got the mysteries, why, which are miracles anyway. But why would you need to see these little things? Some miracles like that. Today, the church has many miracles. Miracles happen continually. 
people that are sick get better. We, we, you know, Orthodox priests see that all the time. People that had demonic problems that get better. And it's, and it's interesting that they go to their magicians and they go to psychiatrists and they go to faith healers. They go here, they go there. And in a way, that only puts the church up because they've gone everywhere, like in the times of Christ. These people that went to him had gone everywhere, a lot of them. They had gone to the sorcerers or the, to the magicians of their times. They had been everywhere and they didn't get better. But then Christ made them better. The same today. People go everywhere to try and get better but then a lot of times when they come to the church, if it's God's will, they get better. We have so many miracles. We said the holy water, the holy light. There's a pamphlet there on the holy light in Jerusalem where the fire comes out of Christ's tomb and everyone's present, even Jews are present at that in Jerusalem at the time of Holy Saturday. And people hold 33 candles and when you hold one candle and put it on your hand, I'm sure you're going to jump higher than the... Olympic high jumpers but when you hold 33 candles because it's 33 because Christ died at 33 years old the flame is great and yet on that day that flame does not burn I haven't been personally there are people who have been but I've seen videos and people have got this flame big fire and they're putting it on their beard in their face this and that on their clothes it doesn't burn them Catholics see it, Armenians see it, Coptics see it, the Jews that are there see it, sometimes because there's police, they're Jewish, etc., etc. Do they convert? But only the Orthodox can light it. It only happens for the Orthodox. And we've said we've got the relics of the saints where the bodies don't decompose. We've got miraculous icons. Some icons that do miracles. Some icons give off myrrh. Some icons give blood. Some icons... Uh, icons give um, tears, and yet these things are examined by scientists. They can't work it out. When communism came to Russia, they took the relics of the saints and put them into, they examined them so they can expose and say, look what the priests do. Lenin says, go and get them, get these relics, and let's prove that they're just mummies, that they're dummies or whatever, and prove that they're false, that they're stuffed with cotton wool or whatever, whatever that they, they believe. The Orthodox are doing some tricks. They took them to their Soviet scientists there and they couldn't do anything they couldn't prove anything that was false because it wasn't because these were bodies of of the saints so what they did is they just stuck them in museums in the in the same area as stuffed animals to make fun but 70 80 years later they're gone the communists are gone and orthodoxy is everywhere so their belief just went poof into the air so we have the trees of St. Theodora in Greece where there's a little chapel. You've got to bend down. The chapel is so small, which I've been and many people here have been. And that's where St. Theodora died when she was 17 years old. And from on top of that little chapel, which is around not, not, not very high, there are 17 trees that grow because when she was um, being killed, she said, may my hair be like trees, etc., etc., may my blood be like water, and there's a water fountain there which gives healings. But on top of this little stone church, very small church, there are 17 massive trees where if you go on the roof and you try and put your, try and put your hands around that you can't. They're that big. Some of the trees are that big you cannot put your hand. There are 17 trees there. No one can work out where the roots are, 
and no one can work out why the chapel doesn't crush and they've been there for about a thousand years. Well, what, so does that mean that everyone in that area in Peloponnesus is where that is, does that mean that they all believe because of the trees? No. The people in Saint Ger- where St. Gerasmus is in Kefalonia, do they believe? No, in, the, in, that, in that island, they blaspheme. They blaspheme the saint. So it doesn't mean that because there's miracles, etc., that people are going are to change. We have the snakes of the Mother of God on Kefalonia, on the Domitian of the Mother of God. On the night before, if I remember correct, I gave out icons to you, all these snakes come out of nowhere, come, and they all go towards the church. People pick them up. They're not scared of them. Children aren't scared of them. People don't know where they come from. And on the top of every snake, there's a, there's a, there's a black cross, which is part of their skin. Uh, of course, some people can say that someone painted on there, but anyway. So they, the snakes go into the church, go up the Anoloyon like here, and they all sit all around the mother of God's icon. And no one, as I said, is scared of them. And they're not scared of anyone. As I said, people touch them. People put them on themselves. And um, there's videos of that. And the snakes are there. And even the bishop that's sitting on his throne, there's a snake wrapped around his rod. But most of the snakes go to the mother of God's icon. They stay there for the whole liturgy of the Domitian. And as soon as the priest says the Afghan, which means through the prayers of our Holy Father, Lord Jesus Christ, that God have mercy. As soon as the the service is finished, those those same snakes the ones that supposedly people painted crosses on their heads, they all of a sudden, somehow they've been taught that they all of a sudden become wild. No one can go near them. They go down, out and back into the mountains wherever they come from. And that happens every year at the Domitian. Less and less, of course, now. Um, But the point is that that's what happens. So there are many miracles, holy light, this, that, holy water, etc. Does that mean that people come to the church because of them? Maybe some do. Some people are amazed. They go, I can't believe that. But if you're going to base your faith just on the snakes, then you might as well go to the zoo and work with the, in the snake pit. <laughs> What's the point in, the, in actually just basing your spiritual life on the, on the snakes? But if you see the snakes and say, this is, this is remarkable, there must be something, and start to study the word of God and start to struggle and seek God, then yes, that can be a stepping stone. That's it. We missed out on quite a lot of pages, but I think that's the main, the main sense. I think that, you know, with God's help, I got the, uh, I hope I did, I got the point, uh, the point across. And we're finished. Any questions before we end on the theme? Don't go on to other topics because it just, be, ask me later on if you want other topics. Yes? Uh, the question is, what is a miracle? If you pray and achieve a result, then... There are miracles which bring us to faith, but when, say, for example, your child is sick and you pray and your child gets better, that's a miracle, but that's not necessarily happening to confirm your faith. You've already got faith. What's happening there is that God, out of of his love, heard your prayers, He he felt your... He sensed your faith and he made better. That's coming up, that's a very good point, which is further on in the lessons that we're going to have, whereby it doesn't mean that we don't pray, which is a good question. It doesn't mean that we don't pray if we want, if you're unemployed, 
and you've got to feed your family. You can pray. You can do a malibin, get a priest, do a malibin. You pray, God help me to get a job. You get, the, you get a job, you, thanks, you thank God. It's not that you're, you're saying, oh, from this now, I'm going to uh, believe more or something like that. It's just that that's part of everyday life. Every Christian that struggles sees miracles continually in their life, even when they're fighting their passions, when they're going through difficulties, uh, when they've got demonic warfare or whatever. They're constantly there's miracles. What I'm talking about is these miracles where people just seek all the time miracles willy-nilly, as we say, like they're just out of curiosity. That's no good. But for things that are every day, yes. But always when we pray, we must always say at the end, if it's your will, make my child better. If it's not your will, I accept it. You understand what I'm saying? So yes, there's miracles continually. Priests, when they, as I said before, when they commemorate people, etc. When people come to a priest with faith, a priest is a miracle worker. He does miracles all the time. But it's not something that is spectacular that, um, for myself... I hope that none of that ever happens. One, because it will cause like an avalanche of people to come and then they start to look at you as, you know, like some type of a witch doctor or something and they just come running. And I see people that, that actually come on to other priests, like they used to go to magicians, then they go to the priest in the same spirit. And they go, oh, make me better. Do this, do that. See what I mean? And it's like, I think Elder Faveos, the... Serbian elder, he said in his book there, he says, people come to me as if I'm a, a magician. And they say, oh, tell me about this or make me better or this and that. The spirit's not correct. But if someone's coming with true spirit and saying, Father, please pray for me because of this or my wife or this or that, and there's faith, what the God always gives me. There's miracles continually. So they're not, they're not bad, No. As long as we don't glorify ourselves. Is that any more? One more question? Do you have any questions? Usually you do. Well, I was just going to say, um, like, I can't remember whether this is true, but um, I think I read somewhere like people who are really miracle driven, that then when the Antichrist comes in, that they will follow him because he will display the. Well, I'm a bit surprised that you're saying that because I mentioned all that in the last talk, but you weren't here unless you were hiding somewhere because um, it's just interesting. Were you here hiding? Oh, okay. It's just that you seem to know that that was the last, that was the last term that, yes, people that are miracle-driven will be the first ones. I like that expression, miracle-driven. Um, that's actually a good one. Those people will be the first to worship the Antichrist or even false Christ. You know, people say, oh, look at that miracle, that priest or that or this or that. And then later on, they go to the, um, the magician and they do miracles. They go, oh, he did this or that. And they go to the Buddhist or they go to the Muslim or they go to India to some fake, uh, some, um, some healer over there. And they go, oh, that's marvellous. You know what I mean? Faith on miracles is very shallow, as it says, and very dangerous. But as we said, as I was saying to Gregory, it doesn't mean that we don't have miracles every day in our life. But not that we base, we're not driven just to see miracles. If it's necessary, St. Ignatius says further on in the signs in this book, which I recommend in the signs, he says, obviously Christians are going to pray 
what that they're not going to pray for their child if it's if, if it's sick or for a wife or something like you pray but always you end the prayer thy will be done if it's meant to be heal him if it's not you know whatever is meant to be does that answer yeah that's true that it's it's this we said last talk talk um 35 that the antichrist's miracles will be visual in the air lights and fires and things like that and so are a lot of these people these faith healers it's all to do with those type of things and uh, christ condemned that anyway you should get the talk because um it's all there you missed out on two i think okay Amen. Mm-hmm.